All right. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Beyond the Physics podcast. This is your host, Joseph Guzman. So today we're going to be interviewing Gabriel Rodriguez. So Gabe is a physics graduate student who is currently studying hadronic physics. And Gabe was born in Puerto Rico, having moved to the U.S. for this physics grad school program. So as such, most of the talking points that we touch upon today have to do with cultural differences between Puerto Rico and the United States. For instance, we talk about Gabe's experience in the education system growing up, and I was quite surprised to hear the differences between our K-12 programs. And we also talk about whether Puerto Rico should become a U.S. state, and we happen to have recorded this before a lot of the controversy dealing with Puerto Rico's governor, which inspired hundreds of thousands to protest. So unfortunately, we miss some of those talking points. And we also talk about Gabe's undergrad college experience, which is quite interesting because Gabe started off as an accountant, only to later discover that he wanted to become a physicist. So stick around if you want to hear how that transition occurred. And then the more broad general topics... We talked briefly about imposter syndrome, how Gabe got into hadronic physics specifically, and we repeat the question from Sahana's podcast of, if an alien walked through the front door, what would you ask it? And this led us down some rabbit holes of things that interested us. So I think that should briefly summarize the conversation tonight, so stick around if any of that sounds interesting to you. And it's been quite interesting. The past couple of weeks, I've been receiving a lot of comments from friends and family and people I wouldn't really expect to have checked out the podcast and have been really enjoying it and have told me how it's been inspiring, interesting conversations. And that's really, I guess, the goal of the podcast, right? So keep those stories coming. I mean, it always feels great and just keeps me inspired to keep on going. Right. So thank you for that. And I guess I'd just like to apply a little pressure here is if those people, you know who you are or any of you listening now, um, haven't already liked, commented, subscribed to the podcast, whatever platform you're listening to it on, please do so. I mean, I am very eager to hear what you guys think of the podcast thus far. I mean, it's been, uh, a little radio silent out there, despite the odd comment here, here or there. Anyways, I'll try to be patient, but um, please like, comment, subscribe. I would be forever grateful. Anyways, without further ado, I bring to you our conversation with our good friend, Gabe. This is Beyond the Physics. Okay, hi everyone, and welcome to the Beyond the Physics podcast. This is your host, Joseph Guzman, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Irene Roman. Hi everyone, this is Irene. Hope you're having a great day. <laughs> and today our very special guest is Gabriel Rodriguez. Hi everybody. <laughs> Pleasure. That, I'm glad that you could join us today. Pleasure to be here. Right. And so I guess 
I, where I wanted to start today's conversation is um, perhaps starting a little bit with like your upbringing, mm-hmm. right? And so maybe you can give us a little more detail as to um, what it was like growing up. So were you born in Puerto Rico? Is that yes, the case? Right. I was born, raised until I was 24, 25, and I moved to start my graduate studies. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then... Do you think you could give us a little more detail as to like what it was like growing up in Puerto Rico? Like now that you've had some years in the mm-hmm. U.S., have you noticed anything interesting in terms of like cultural differences or like anything that in particular you felt impacted you growing up? Mm. I mean, uh, nothing major, I wouldn't say. But I mean, mostly I'm in the physics department studying, so I was like, uh, I. Maybe I I should try to get more cultural <laughs> experience with the United States, but uh, for the most part, no. I thought I had a a good childhood. Uh, my never had any problems with my parents. Uh, school was boring to me for the mm. most part, and by the most part, I mean all the parts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, mm. no, uh, okay. Well, so then, could you tell us perhaps like? Any details about your childhood and stuff like that? Like, did you have a lot of siblings? Um, What was your, um, I don't know, environment like, uh, your community, anything like that? Sure. So uh, I lived uh, with my mom and dad and my two brothers. So my brother and my sister, I'm the youngest of the three. My sister is six years older than me. My brother is two years older than me. Mm -hmm. Uh, We lived in the house that's on top of my grandmother's until I was about five or six because my grandfather was uh, sick, so we moved to his house to take care of him. Uh, uh, about a year later, he passed away. I was around six. Uh, it was, I mean, aside from that, in my, my childhood, though, it was very, it was, it was nice. Hmm. Uh, my parents also, I mean, divorced when I was about seven or eight. Uh, I went to two, two schools. I went to a small school that was a house before it was a school. It was a <laughs> school until uh, up to third, third grade. Hmm. Um, very like close, uh, small classrooms, maybe 20, 20 people at most, probably 15. Mm-hmm. Um, like the principal was always around. And I, it was the kind of principal that uh, they, whenever you had lunch, you were forced to, <laughs> to eat your plate. <laughs> Or you would be said, yes, she would sit down next to you and make you wait for like another 10 minutes until you finish your plate. So, mm. you know, it was that kind of environment. <laughs> um, afterwards, I went to my second high, my second school where I stayed until I high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was all, both these houses were walking distance from my house, from my second house where mm-hmm. my grandfather lived. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them was about. 10 minutes, the other one was about 10, 15 minutes. So I was always close to, to home. Mm-hmm. Uh, my community, when I was younger, the neighborhood was a little more lively. I want to say like around, I was 12. It kind of died down. So I didn't make, I didn't have many friends around my neighborhood. Mm. Uh, yeah, like I said, high sc- uh, school for the most part was boring. I was never very interested in what they were teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, my f- family they're all business people uh my dad was a mechanic he owned a business for some time where he sold motorbike motorcycles uh my mom studied accounting my sister uh studied what is it called in english uh uh commerce not commerce uh marketing Mm -hmm. my brother did a 
administrative studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm the only people, only one in my home that had to take more than calculus. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a pretty interesting upbringing in the sense that it's, it seems very different than my own already. Right. Mm-hmm. So like when I went to school, there was like even in elementary school, there was hundreds of kids. Oh, no. Right. So, so if you were to speculate, how do you think having such a close knit or like such a small classroom, is it just like your neighborhood friends, I guess then that basically more or less attended your. Yeah. So some of, some of them were neighborhood friends. Some of them uh, were from farther away, but that school kind of went out of their way to try to incentivize the parents to be more attentive to their Mm -hmm. children and to have uh, and to make friends with the other parents, mm-hmm. uh, for example, my sister also studied in that school, mm-hmm. and this is a, this is a, a bit of a, an outlier. But I went, so my mom became very close friends with another parents from there. Mm-hmm. The, that group became very close of parents, uh, and I've been going to one of those parents' Christmas parties till I was about twenty-two. Mm. Wow. Uh, every every year, and to maybe sometimes. If there was a big uh, boxing fight, boxing is a big thing in Puerto Rico. Mm. It was a big boxing fight. Sometimes he would do a party. We would invite us, stuff like <laughs> this. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, that sounds pretty interesting. I mean, um, and then you also mentioned that it, uh, the community kind of died down around 12 years old. Yeah. So why, why was that the case? I think that was mostly just coincidence. A lot of people moved out uh, some and... For example, I had about five or six close friends around mm-hmm. my neighborhood, me and my brother. Mm-hmm. Um, but so me and my brother went to one school, the other two of them went to another school. Uh, one of them moved away. Uh, the third one originally was in our school and then also moved away about a year after I came in mm-hmm. to that school. So I'd, I think it was mostly a coincidence that they moved, they moved all the way. Okay, so like moved away to the United States or uh, somewhere else? No, I think none of them moved away. F- uh, no, none of them moved away from the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. And so how is it that they ended up at a different school to begin with? Uh, so there were two school, like big, bigger schools uh, that were nearby. Mm-hmm. So in fact, my sister went to, what was it called? Uh... Not Santa Fe. Uh, to one school where the other two kids went. Mm-hmm. And me and my brother went to La Merced, which is the school I went to, which was, I mean, these two schools were both about 15 minute, 20 minute walk. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was, I think it was just a coincidence that we diverged in that sense. Right. So I'm, I mean, it's just like, it sounds like there's a choice or something in, in where you get to go to school. Oh, uh, these are two private schools. Oh, okay. And I mean, uh, I don't know how exactly things are here, but they, in Puerto Rico, private school doesn't seem as expensive as okay. what I can gather. Yeah. I mean, it can be expensive, sure, but mm-hmm. not as, like my mom, my family wasn't that well off and yeah. they could afford a decent private school. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so. in, to tell you my perspective, as, mm-hmm. as, at least to, to how I think it works in the United States is mm-hmm. that, um, if you want to go to public school, it's determined based upon where you live, yeah. right? And so, um, so 
like when I was growing up, you know, I was basically on this like locked path of like, Mm -hmm. here's where I'm going to go to school if I end up going to public school. I did go to private school for some years in middle school. Um, My parents were not well off either. So they took out a mortgage on their house and went uh, into debt for that opportunity. And it was very expensive from what they tell me. Um, Basically more expensive than college. Right. So um, it was a pretty big burden and um, not many families would do the same. Um, But yeah, so this is why like if you have a certain like um, if you have certain communities that are kind of disadvantaged in terms of the opportunities available to them, like certain teachers, you know, might specifically choose to go to better known schools Mm -hmm. with better reputations and stuff like that. It could kind of um, have a rippling effect in terms of like you go to this, you're born in this area, so you have a worse education growing up. Right. And so if you want to escape that, you either have to kind of like cheat the system a little bit and say, oh, I don't live here. I actually live in some relative's place or something and end up driving, you know, much longer distance to go to this better known school and stuff like that. So um, these opportunities of choosing different schools is actually kind of like a big barrier for a lot of families in the United States. Okay. Uh so I don't know much about the public school, but I'm pretty sure it's not that way in Puerto Rico because I know people from public that did want to go to public school that went to public schools that were far from their homes. Mm-hmm. And I know there's a few specific ones that are uh, specialized either in science or arts mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And those take students from all over the place, from all, the, all over the island. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I, I mean, of course we have schools with really bad reputation so people parents that care about their kids they usually try to avoid those mm-hmm. um but in my case so yeah in my case my mom also like mostly mortgaged when my parents separated yeah uh and partly it was due because well they did fight but uh economic like the, there was a big hurricane around 1999 mm-hmm. or 98 uh and so the shop where my father used to sell motorcycles mm. got flooded. And so, yeah. and re- recently before that, it had been robbed. Mm. So they had to close it. And so things economically got worse and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and yeah, my mom also mostly mortgaged it. Mm. Partly because she insisted that uh, private school is much better than public school. Therefore, I need to do this to get my kids into private school and get a better education. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Uh, Irene, was uh, yeah. what was your experience growing up in terms of like pre-high school, um, things like that? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've gone to public school basically all my life. When I was young, I went to a private school for kindergarten and first grade. And then we moved to my parents specifically. Um, at first, I guess, we lived in a town that public school was notoriously known not to be too great but I guess it was notorious um and so they put me put my sister and I in a private school it was a catholic school for two years around there um I guess the whole kind of culture in catholic schools a kind of uh I would say I don't know <laughs> how you can a bit more that. strict yeah, like my my say, school was Catholic, more strict, light Catholic. I it was light Catholic. <laughs> I, I would call it light Catholic. So you have experience in a somewhat Catholic 
yeah. school culture. Yeah. I mean, it's not super strict. Cause I know like my parents went to more strict and they like hit you with the ruler like that severe. Yeah. I mean, I Mine definitely was... wanted to ask you too more about the culture, no. the educational culture, I guess, in the schools that you could gone to, mm. like how the school system was set up, the classes set up. Was it more freedom mm. for the students? Was it very structured? Was it strict? Mm. So in my case, both the, in both schools, uh, you were in the same classroom always. So the professor is the one that rotated around. Oh. And it, usually it was you sit down, you spent, uh, I think it was three, three classes in a row, then you have lunch and then four classes in a row and then you leave. And then you just, you just rotate what class you take. I don't know how it is here, but every day, almost every day you would take all your classes. Like you would take Spanish, English, math, history, uh, uh, whatever the other ones were, usually there were seven. Uh, you took those classes, oh, yeah, science. Uh, you take all seven, either all five days or at least four days in my schools. And you were always in the same room. And if, if you left, it was usually, if you left the classroom, it was usually because the, prof the, the teacher was maybe inspired or wanted to do something special that day. And so we went out for a little bit, but. I see. Yeah, and every once in a while we would have uh, field trips. Uh, those varied and from year to year. So I guess, why did you find it not interesting for you? Oh, uh, I mean, I am a fairly docile person. I don't complain when people, <laughs> I usually don't complain that much. Uh, but if I don't like something, I, it's very hard for me to care for it. And for the most part, we were, I was just sitting there obeying what they told me. Like, okay, I'll play along. I don't like what you're doing. Okay. I guess, like, why was school boring to you? I mean, it was just sitting down, listening to someone tell you, talk to you, tell you about all these subjects, which you don't really have any, I didn't have any particular mm. personal interest in because I had no attachment to them. There I was, there were the topics, as far as I was concerned, there were topics picked by someone else, hopefully with good intentions, hopefully uh, with smart intentions as well. Um, but they were just picked by someone else. And I was just op being obedient more than anything else. I think. So it was like a kind of like traditional classroom experience where it's like you sit down at the desk, the teacher's teaching a specific topic mm -hmm. in some particular way, and you have to learn those yeah. kind of rules to apply it. And yeah, yeah. Okay. So I just, I was wondering if there was kind of a different in some way experience in terms of the traditional classroom. Like maybe there was like more freedom in what you could study, like you would it was more like project-based at some point, or if you really had like a traditional educational experience? No, I mean, uh, my understanding is that at some point, Puerto Rico basically adopted the US system for the most part. Okay. Uh, so for, as far as I know, it's mostly the same. In fact, sometimes I've seen schools where the students were choosing their classes. And I was like, huh, you could choose your classes? Because uh, I think the only, the only chance I got to pick a class out of my entire schedule was in, I think, 12th grade. And it was essentially two choices out of, you, you could pick two out of four choices. Oh, wow. So that was the extent. In 12th grade? In 12th grade, yeah. Maybe <laughs> wow. 11th, I don't think 11th, but maybe, I'm gonna say maybe. Hmm. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Cause I mean, my whole high school career, you get to pick mm -hmm. your whole schedule. Like yeah. it, it, it was very similar to a college experience in mm -hmm. that sense and that, if you wanted to like focus on more science stuff, you kind of were given that opportunity. Like 
you could focus on taking this more math tract, but it's up to you to decide that and to come up with that plan mm. yourself kind of thing. So like, for instance, um, out of high school, I already finished, you know, Calc 1 and statistics and, um, you know, all these college math courses because yeah. at some point I decided I wanted to do physics in high school. So that kind of gave me a, a leg up in terms of when I went into college, I could finish, you know, a little earlier than I would have otherwise and stuff like that. So I think that's interesting. I mean, um, if you were to speculate as to why do you think that is, is that just because of the amount of people on the island or like um, a specialty or like... Uh... No, I don't think it'd be good because of the amount of people. I mean, I know that the really good schools... Uh, some of the really good schools, private, and some and the really good schools that are public, they both did that. Because mm. I I knew people that went to two of the three of the very good public schools in Puerto Rico, mm. and they had all done that. They had all taken maybe calculus already, or mm -hmm. some of them had taken more than calculus. Yeah. By the time they had graduated high school, um, in I guess I can only speak for my case. It was a private school, which, uh, to be fair. At some point, it started like dipping in quality, hmm. uh, and then at the very, very end, when I was, I want to say maybe in tenth or eleventh grade, it started kind of like going up again in quality. Um, but as far as I know, in general, schools don't have that much uh, connection to universities unless they're the good ones. In the sense that uh, maybe you take advanced classes in the school, or maybe you take college classes while you're in high school, things like this, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, from what I know, it's more of the, the really good schools or the better schools that do this. Yeah. Okay. And then, so then when you went from high school to undergrad, you went to university in Puerto Rico? Well, yes. Well, right? Yeah. So what was that experience like? Oh, it was great. Uh, so it was great partly because so... I guess a little context to uh, in Puerto Rico. So we, I received the Pell Grant mm -hmm. and that Pell Grant just covered all the tuition costs and, and more. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden I went from having to, my mom having to pay for my high school to me getting money for going to university, like not that much, but it was enough to, I, I didn't need to ask my mom for any kind of money to, to eat or to be able to get to school because I had the, the train, uh, the classes where I could choose them. A lot of the professors, if you, if you looked around, you could get good professors. So they, if you looked around, you could, and tr if you tried, you can get good teachers more on like in high school where you're stuck with mm -hmm. good or bad, whatever you get. Yeah. Uh, I also, when I went there, so if I first, I started in accounting. Okay. I started in accounting. I think I, st I did accounting for two years. Mm -hmm. um, I chose accounting because it sounded a few friends of mine were going to accounting. My mom went down to accounting. I thought it was a fine choice. I mean, it's a good, it's a decent job. Why not? Mm -hmm. uh, so I started in accounting. Uh, oh yeah, my first year was not the best. <laughs> I remember it was uh, so we had to take a social science class that was. Uh, so you, in, in our university, you have to take, I think it was about 21 credits of general studies. Mm -hmm. uh, and so six, two, three, six of them, six credit had to be in social science. And the first, and so the first year, they just give you the class. They give you a schedule. You can change it, but 
they give it to you, they give one to you. And I just took it and I went to my professor and was like, holy crap, this is, this class was, that class was way harder than anything I had ever taken in high school. And I was like, the, the shift there just took me, took me off guard. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the class on? It was a social science class and it was a spe- specific topic. I don't rem- remember very well. I remember him mostly going through stories and uh, at the end you had to like write a little short essay explaining what was the fundamental like the fundamental thing that he was trying to get across uh which is okay kind of, this is that's kind of, that was kind of subjective i was kind of annoyed sometimes mm-hmm. by that um but he was i mean the, the teacher was good though i enjoyed him even though he failed most of us <laughs> uh, yeah, he, he, he was, it was a fun experience to be in his class. Mm-hmm. Not in the test, though. Yeah. Um, but anyways, uh, yeah, the freed, I suddenly had freedom. At, at about So in high school, I started learning about a little bit of physics. I'm like, oh, it, sounds, it, it was interesting. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really think of it as something I could... Actually, no. I thought about it like, oh, if I don't do account... If I don't like accounting, maybe I can just do physics or something like that. It was mm. something I knew about, but I didn't really think mm. about it as the option. Yeah. So I realized, I started studying accounting. I realized how boring it is. <laughs> um, and at some point, like, ha, ah, I should, I like physics. Because I was watching a lot of documentaries, I remember, in that time. Uh, so I decided, okay, maybe I shouldn't jump ship because who knows what it's like. So I remember I, while I was still studying accounting, I took Calculus 1. Uh, and I was going to take physics one, but, uh, oh yeah. Cause I play field hockey and the semester I was going to take physics one, I took, had one, one, uh, tournament in Mexico, hmm. which was like two weeks. So I, I actually did register for the class, but it was, I lost two weeks because of this tournament. And then I was going to have a second tournament later in that semester. And when I came back from the first first tournament, I was like, "Oh, what's this? <laughs> what are we talking about? Uh, what, what, what was the topic? It was it was general physics one, so it must have been uh, they had finished kinematics and vectors, uh, so may, they probably were talking about Newton's force." Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, Holy crap, "I don't even know what the first topic <laughs> is." <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I had to drop it. Uh, but I decided, okay, I don't like accounting. I did like the little, the little I understood of this physics stuff I liked, so I just switched. Mm-hmm. Um, so next semester, I just I couldn't take physics because you only, they only taught physics one oh, the okay. first semester. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I had to, so I just took a few maths classes and mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, continued. On. Do you think we could explore a little bit more as to those motivations as to like so going from accounting, which in my perspective seems like a very pragmatic practical type of work yeah. right to something like physics which is very abstract like you could almost say idealistic type of work mm-hmm. um like you said you mentioned in in high school you were kind of interested in physics and you kind of at that point somewhere along the line determined it was like a backup mm-hmm. what what led you to think in the first place that it could be a backup for you i mean I wouldn't say that it became a backup. Uh, I would say that I never took physics in high school. 
Okay. So the most I got was chemistry. So the only reason mm -hmm. I learned anything about physics is because I kind of ran into it at some point, probably in YouTube, I'm guessing. So mm -hmm. physics, or maybe in History Channel. Physics wasn't a requirement in the high school. No, there was no physics class in the high school. Oh, so you could not even no. take physics in high no. school. In fact, okay. I was, I remember, I was in the advanced math class in my school and we took precalculus. Oh, so they never, I mean, I was going to ask you about the track you know, the math and mm. physics tracks and science tracks that you had in school in general as well. But I would like to know about that, yeah. but I also want to continue with your question. <laughs> too, um, so. I mean, we can, I mean, I, maybe that'll give a little context sure, to yeah. what's the level. So yeah, and from what I remember, I think in ninth grade, I took algebra. 10th grade, I took geometry. Uh, yeah, ninth grade, algebra. 10th grade, geometry. 11th grade, I don't, remember i know i took pre-calculus in the 12th grade um okay. in terms of science i took i think biology ninth grade or no 10th grade biology i think it was 11th grade chemistry and 12th grade i didn't have any science there was okay. no okay oh wow um i think in part the i know i know in Puerto, i think in Puerto Rico they have a lot of difficulty finding like especially physics teachers okay because um, i remember a few friends of mine i know actually one friend of mine taught high school for a year and all he needed what to get the permit to do that was a bachelor's and i think it was nine or 12 credits of physics wow that was i think the, so i think the issue in terms of physics for example is uh there's just not enough people that right. know the subject okay. to teach it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so going back to so yeah so that's probably was i mean, to me physics wasn't even like it's not a subject I even took in high school. Mm. It was just something I ran into. I was like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, so I wouldn't even say that it was, that I put it in the second le second category. It went up from zero from nothing <laughs> to the second category. Yeah, so I mean, if anything, that makes it more interesting that you ended up in physics and th that you had no traditional exposure to it in the first place, mm. right? So. I mean, I, I always liked, uh, uh, so actually, I remember thinking, I forgot this. When I was changing to physics, I thought, oh, I also like philosophy. But I thought also, I don't like reading all the crap they're going to make me read. <laughs> so then, no. And I don't think I'll ever get a job. <laughs> I don't know what I can do with a philosophy degree. So I'll just go with physics. I, I kind of like the math in high school. I like philosophy that they kind of talk about some interesting things every once in a while, a lot of the time. Let's just go with physics. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm, for the most part, in terms of the ca the uh, counting being a practical thing versus physics being fairly idealistic, mm. uh, I always just thought of, I just like to. Usually, I would just I like to think of it for myself. So I think it was enough important to me that my job forced me to think. I guess it was good enough that I had a job and I could just think about things by myself or mm. with friends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So did you first choose accounting because it was something that you saw was like practical that you could get a job with and then do all these other things you were interested in thinking about on the side? Or were there other reasons that you chose to go into accounting first? Oh, sorry. No, I didn't mean to think to imply that. I thought oh, about okay. It that, I didn't mean to imply that I thought about it that much. No. Okay. <laughs> the big reason I went to accounting is, okay, so everybody, so essentially everybody from most of my life says, oh, you have to go to college. That's the right choice. I'm like, yeah, that sounds about right. I mean. Uh, from what I can see, yeah, going to college is a very important thing. So, okay, I'll go to college. What? I don't know. I don't care about it. I don't care that much about anything. This is me in 12th grade. 
Um, I have a couple friends that go to accounting. My mom went to accounting. Accounting. Mm-hmm. I mean, accounting seems like a fine choice, considering the, a few other choices. I, uh, accounting seems like a fine choice. And if, I mean, and, th- and I thought, well, I kind of like physics, although from what I've heard, from what I've seen from the documentaries. Mm-hmm. So um, that was kind of like a second choice. I see. So if there was no cultural pressure for you to go to college, what would you have done after high school? I mean, I probably would have gone to college because, I mean, I was smart enough to realize Mm -hmm. that college was, you really didn't want to go to college if you wanted to get a really good job. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe had I been in a more, in a family that was more like, had mechanics, like had more mechanics and more in the trades, I think Mm -hmm. you call it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe in that case, I would have seen, okay, no, actually I can do trades yeah and make a living out of that and enjoy the rest of my life like this okay but around my 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 high school my school never neither of my schools had anything to do with trade I see. that kind yeah. of teaching you that kind of skill so like that wasn't really an option okay and that's or that wasn't something i thought about because it was never around me mm-hmm. that makes sense. so i think i would probably always went to high school yeah. in this environment that i lived okay yeah yeah i mean it's interesting like um in terms of like the German system, right? Because in Germany, I think the way they do it is, you know, you go to high school and then at some point you decide whether you're going down the trade path or you're going down the academic college path, right? And those are two kind of separate tracks that they try to le- prepare you for in advance. So I wonder, you know. That's during high school that you choose that? I believe so. Yeah, I think so, but I'm not positive. My, my stepdad told me about it at okay. some point, but I forget the details, the intricacies. But yeah, that's interesting because, I mean, I guess we do have a shortage of people going into trade jobs here, right? Mm-hmm. They are definitely in need and desire in terms of the mark- demand for the economy. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I also did like a little bit of accounting work for like one summer while I was um, kind of just job sur- job surfing. My, my stepmother, is um, she's a biller for, you know... Um, medical practice mm-hmm. right and so um i i picked up some work there and yeah for me it was kind of mind-numbing work right it's just <laughs> like you're literally just uh, a calculator right you're just well in my experience i was just adding up numbers keeping track of totals and and stuff and it, it was like um not very stimulating and so for me personally in that environment i would go crazy so <laughs> so i mean i um if I was in your shoes, I would say <laughs> you made the right choice. <laughs> no. But um, I mean, I'm sure it can get yeah. a little bit more advanced. Yeah, of course. You have there, to there do some investigation, yeah. to, figure yeah. out where these report. Like right. to yeah. be fair, they put they give you the worst part of it. <laughs> I mean, because in fact, in like bigger firms, they they have all this kind of all this software that that just does most of the thing for you. Yeah. Like when you t- when you t- take accounting classes, what they teach you is essentially uh, what I would say like rules of bookkeeping. Mm-hmm. And what are like the legally, what are the right ways of uh, doing like bookkeeping in general, mm. which is, I didn't find very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Interesting. Okay. Um, so one more, well, maybe a couple more things I wanted to touch on from your homeland is, uh, I don't want to get too political on here, but um, so you could try to avoid that if you want to, but um so how do you feel about um, our current administration and how we as a country have dealt with, you know, Puerto Rico after the Hurricane Maria and stuff like that? 
how do you feel the state of Puerto Rico is currently? Do you feel like perhaps the administration should be doing more? Is there something that we should be advocating for in terms of, you know, bringing some, some things to light in terms of like not enough advocacy for Puerto Ricans? I mean, I really don't know because I mean, uh, whatever you say about Puerto Rico, it's it's not a state. So like a lot of pe- a lot of time people com- say, uh, oh, they're not treated the same as a state. Well, they're not a state. Uh, so I, I would say like the question is, okay, they're not a state. Maybe they shouldn't be. The, que- uh, the question from the Puerto Rican standpoint is like, how are you going to treat us? And based on that, they should they will res- like, we will respond, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people in Puerto Rico. Like, want to be a state mm-hmm. and they want to be treated the same way and from from that from those per, from their perspective then yes you i would say that you haven't treated you haven't treated us as well as a state right um some other i mean other people could say yeah but you're not a state therefore we don't have to treat you like that in which case i would say sure okay but then for example when mexico and venezuela want to bring in ships then you should just let them in <laughs> I mean, if, if you're not going to treat us like a state, then give us the freedom to act like the way we, we think we should be at, it should be done. Uh, in, in, in the case of like what happened with Hurricane Maria, I know mm-hmm. for a fact that, or I read articles that say, oh, there are Mexican and uh, there, are, there are ships essentially from other countries. I remember Venezuela and Mexico being two of them. Um, they, were had to, they were just anchored outside the island because... Uh, it took Trump, I think, 10 days to lift uh, the Jones Act, which right. prevented non-U.S. ships from going to Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, that being pro, uh, thinking that you should treat them as well as state or not. Well, that that's just that was just negligent from them. That was too mm. slow. I mean, yeah, uh, that's nothing to be have. That's nothing to do. With how much do we do for you? It's like how what are we letting you? What are we stopping you from doing? That's a complete. Yeah. Uh, so that that for example that's completely yeah. i would say completely wrong yeah um uh, but in terms of maria i know what well, i mean at the end of the day you did help a lot i don't know mm-hmm. and i was i was not there where, while it happened so all i know are, i know as much as okay not as much maybe a little bit more because i have family who give me anecdotes and friends who gave me anecdotes but right um yeah okay so uh there were just as many anecdotes about there or not many just there were the same way there were anecdotes about oh how fema had left this huge storage of water there for months because they didn't have the logistic capability of uh distributing it or whatever Mm. there were also i also had a friend that told me oh he was helping fema and they went to one of these one of the pueblos and the mayor of that pueblo went up to him and just took water just asked oh give me that water and just left which is not a problem with the United States. It's a problem with like the internal mm-hmm. problems of Puerto Rico, and uh, uh, what I would claim is the low quality of the political class. Okay, mm-hmm. um, I was actually telling telling someone else the other. Uh, okay, this kind of changes like changes a little bit the topic in terms yeah, of yeah. the relationship U.S. Puerto Rico. Um, uh, another friend from physics was asking me about what we were talking about politics and. Some point I told him, okay. I was explaining to him the problems that Puerto Ricans have cost themselves in the sense in like their own political culture, mm-hmm. like their own politics. Uh, so I just said, okay, why would they 
why would the United States accept uh, unincorporated territory which bankrupt into a state? Because he was saying, oh, I think they should be a state. Why would you do that? Why would you take an unincorporated territory that's bankrupt? Like, why? Uh, I don't know. Morals? Okay, good. Okay, let me tell you. Let me let me ask you something. Why don't you just take off all the embargoes, if if for and let Puerto Rico trade and manage their own diplomatic relationships with the rest of the world by themselves, so they can build up their own infrastructure. Uh, which, however, hope how many if they want to specialize with the United States, they'll they'll probably do that. Whatever. Uh, if they can uh, or we can. Uh, get ourselves out of it now that we don't have these extra restrictions due to the United States. Then we have proven that we want that we are capable of being a good state. Uh, and which I think from the from the state from the people from the side of the people who want to statehood, I think would be a stronger case. Like, oh, we are as good or better than many of your own states. We should be a part of the union because we want to. And we have already this relationship with you. Mm-hmm. And from the people from the side of the pro-independence people, well, they have proven that they want to be, they can be an independent state or independent country. Now they have to convince the rest of their people, okay, it's a better choice than being with the United States. Mm-hmm. I'd say, so that's how I fall. Okay. So how, where do you personally fall on that side of the fence? Pro-independence or pro-statehood in terms of... I mean, Mostly because of sentimental reasons, I fall into pro-independence. But if they want to be a state, that's not going to keep me from sleeping. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I care more about them. I, I care more about the... I, okay, so I feel Puerto Rican people have a problem of self-esteem. Uh, mm-hmm. And which I would rather... And if they resolve that... And then want to join the United States or be independent. I care more that they, if they want, if they resolve that and they want to be, still want to be a part of the United States, that's fine with me. That's not that. Okay. Could you explain more? What, what do you mean by problem with self-esteem? Um, problem with self-esteem is, uh, the, the easy, uh, the ease with which, or the, the view with which people look at how, like everything done by the United States in general is taken to be automatically good like Mm -hmm. if we want to resolve a problem if the government wants to resolve a problem typically what they do is they ask is they look at some you someone from the uh, some state from the united states maybe the federal government and they try to imitate them Mm -hmm. uh it's oftentimes all the time you'll you'll hear politicians talking about uh colonizados colonized people and I mean, when two when two parties are t- when when all the party when all the politicians are using the same term, you know it means nothing. <laughs> uh, so even 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 the even almost the politicians keep talking about being colonized people and like oh, mm-hmm. they're 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 just pl- uh, reacting to whatever the United States wants to do or whatever. Like, uh, yeah. So I mean, to me, that seems less like um, a self-esteem issue and rather like a critical thinking capacity. Like something that we've been advocating a lot for on the podcast is in terms of like educating people and in terms of like um, allowing them to 
um, properly question things and come to conclusions for themselves, right? And so I don't know if you have any questions along this line, if anything's coming to your head, but to me, this seems like more like an education issue than a self-esteem or like mental health kind of thing. I mean, I would say that a lack of self-esteem can stop you from being a critical thinker. Okay. Because if I am capable of realizing why you're wrong, mm-hmm. but don't have the self-esteem to act on it. So I, uh, for example, I build this in this argument that pr- clearly proves to me that you're wrong, mm-hmm. but I still see you as the figure that is always right. Yeah. Then I then then the problem that the thing that the thing that's stopping me is not my critical thinking; it's my self-esteem. Yeah. So I think in this case, uh, the problem of self-esteem is is partly why okay yeah partly why a major reason why there's no critical thinking or less critical thinking than perhaps there could be yeah yeah take your point anything to add to this yeah um, i don't know i mean i guess like from your perspective what do you think has formed this kind of environment in puerto rico uh well i mean so okay like a fear to question or like or what caused that i guess yeah okay so it's been um, more than a hundred years now since puerto mm-hmm. rico and the united states have had a relationship and at first uh uh the, the beginning from what i know uh, my, from what i know of history uh essentially the united states would choose a general governor usually an actual general sent into puerto rico and he would be the governor of Puerto Rico, general governor. Um, and for a long time, they were not the nicest people. Uh, there were at least two massacres on their people chosen by the president of the United States. Uh, something that these governors would often do is uh, Puerto Rico is Caribbean, so it's very fertile land, fertile mm-hmm. land especially for sugarcane. Apparently, mm-hmm. I heard once it's one of the best in terms of yield per area was one of the best in the world. So something they did is they brought all these uh, US companies, bought all the land from the local agricultures and then, mon- then monocultured mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the crop. Yeah. 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 So they would specialize in sugarcane because all these people were coming here to get huge amounts of sugarcane per area. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's what happened in the sugarcane. Uh, and during, I want to say it was either, I think it was in the 1930s, uh, Puerto Rico and the United States allowed Puerto Rico to get their own constitution, which was approved by Congress. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so obviously the, fir- yeah. and obviously the first governor of Puerto Rico was very friendly to the United States. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the United States, at some point when they gave us citizenship to people in Puerto Rico, they did that by tying it to the Jones Act, which essentially gives essentially a trade is we get citizenship, they get our ports and our, our essentially our borders. Uh, so that's why we can't get we you can't we can't trade directly with other countries. You okay. all ships have to go to U.S. mainland and then go to Puerto Rico. Uh, so it's uh, movements things like that. Uh, uh, the U.S. has always had influence in Puerto Rico. Like, uh, if you go to Puerto Rico, it's very hard to walk places because most of the roads were built with by either United States engineers or with a lot of U.S. U.S. influence. 
to which they wanted to import their cars. That's, that's my understanding of what, what happened for the roads, the infrastructure of the roads. Uh, it was mostly, it was U.S. car companies wanted to import their cars because it was a new market. So, and they, because of our relationship with the United States, they had very favorable conditions. So if they could get the, US, the Puerto Rico to be a very car-based society, I guess, then that just you know, had a huge market for them, even though it was a small country mm-hmm. or a small place. Uh, so, yeah, steps like that. Uh, there, were, there have been cases where Puerto Rico has traded with other countries, which has like, signed uh, contracts or not contracts, treaties, I guess it would be, mm-hmm. with our contracts that... Very, I think there was one case with Japan, some chips or something. And then the Congress said, nope, you can't do that. And then, and so we had to just uh, back off from the treaty. Mm-hmm. Or, for example, I know uh, with Dominican Republic, we have several, uh, I think they call the accords, because they can't make, so, since you can't sign treaties, you kind of like accord with that. With the, mm. We kind of make an accord. With the, United, with the Dominican Republic. And so it's like a under the table treaty kind of thing. <laughs> it's like, we'll do this for each other, but we're not gonna make it official like <laughs> like most countries. Yeah. Like, and I mean, that's, that changes a lot in your mentality when, when, you, uh, when you can't think of, I'm gonna trade with, uh, with Spain or Japan or something like that. I have, I'll trade with you first. I have to trade with you first. And, uh, Okay, after a hundred years of you trading with him first, mm-hmm. then yeah. yeah. Also, because people could jump so easily from Puerto Rico to the United States, uh, there are more Puerto Ricans in the United States than there are in Puerto Rico. Yeah. Uh, so you start also making connections to, especially like New York, places like Miami. You kind of start building connections to those. Yeah. And so. Like not everything is illegitimate. Like not everything is in a bad sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So I, I was just listening to a podcast um, by Radio Lab on a very similar topic. So uh, the interesting case study in relation to this is uh, American Samoa, right? And so they're kind of where Puerto Rico was a hundred years ago in terms of um, basically they're the one territory that the United States owns that they're not automatically granted citizenship for being mm-hmm. born there. Right. And so it's an interesting case study because, um, they have some traditions or laws that are kind of seem inherently like a little, uh, iffy, like kind of racist, <laughs> but it's in their self-interest. Right. So like, for you instance, mean Samoan people? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, like, for instance, for them, to, for anyone to buy land on Samoa, as I recall from the podcast, is that you have to at least be 50% Samoan, right? And so that would prevent this kind of case of like where people would come in and buy up the land for, you know, agriculture or, or whatever, some countries coming in and like kind of uh, decimating the culture. But it is also inherently racist, right? In the sense that, like, you could have Samoan people there, and if you're under 50%, you're kind of, like, shit out of luck, right? And that's not right either. So the Constitution would guarantee you those civil liberties in terms of, like, you have the right to... You can't be discriminated against for your um, your race or, you know, there's, you know, um, your sexual preferences or your religion or, you know, whatever, 
right? So, com- so there's a lot of baggage that comes with citizenship yeah. and stuff like that. And yeah. so, like, um, it comes with, you know, all the civil liberties, but at the same time, it comes with all the, like, capitalistic, you know, kind of baggage that kind of works generally towards the detriment of that native culture, right, in the name of globalism or whatever. So I don't know how you feel about um, being, like, a United States citizen, right? Is it kind of like, do you feel like you're an American or do you, does it feel like very distinct in terms of like Puerto Ricans are not Americans? Like we can say we are, but mm. in name, but perhaps in practice, it's a very different culture. And I mean, I, I would say that Puerto Rico is definitely a Hispanic culture. Mm. Uh, if I were to meet some random person from Spain or from Argentina or Mexico, I would probably, I would expect, I expect to have more in common with the person from Spain, Mexico, Argentina than I would do with a random American. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I would, I think of myself as, I, I've always thought of myself as Puerto Rican and kind of like the United States was over there, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like I never thought of myself as American. Mm-hmm. I know that that is, I know that a lot of people in Puerto Rico do feel like they're Americans, especially in, for example, like the people who are pro-state. Uh, Sometimes I've seen them when they either debate or respond to some pro-independence person or someone who's kind of in that, like talking in that kind of tone, like kind of manner or, mm-hmm. or attitude. They sometimes start like saying, no, we are, you were, we are American citizens and stuff like that. So, so I would say that we are fairly, div- I think we are fairly divided. I think that's a fair thing to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the, the, what's called the referendums that have gone in Puerto Rico. So the 2017 one is not a good good benchmark, but the 2012 one I think is a good benchmark because you see a, a 40-something percent of the people who voted being pro-statehood, mm-hmm. but that is less than 50%. And in fact, you it, the, that referendum had two questions, and I wanted to say something around 15 I think it was less than 20%, but more than 15% of the people who voted for the first question did not vote for the second question in which they asked, uh, do you want to be a statehood independent or not? They just left it blank. Mm-hmm. So I would say that there's a, I would guess that there's a big percentage of people who feel they're part of the United States. Yeah. Uh, but I was, I guess it's kind of like what Americans, they're the biggest minority, I would say. Mm-hmm. I would say, yeah. Yeah. And if we could tie this back to physics, um, how do you think, well, do you, from your perspective, do you feel that being a Puerto Rican gives you a unique perspective in physics at all? Like, do you feel like perhaps you might have a more novel or unique way of solving problems in comparison to, you know, the majority Americans that, you know, solve problems? Do you find yourself... Um, looking at situations differently compared to your peers? I don't know if I would say that I solve physics problems differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that it's not hard to believe, not, it's not hard to see why, because most of my professors studied either in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, many of them studied, I know one of them studied in London. Like most of them are U.S. or maybe European PhDs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess... I wouldn't, you wouldn't, I wouldn't expect most of, most of us to have a wildly different way of thinking about physics because we 
kind of come from the same tradition, I guess, in that sense. Yeah. Um, so I guess if there were any, if, where the real difference would come, I think would be maybe in the terms of attitude or in, uh, more like in the social part of decision-making. It's like, uh, like I want to go back to Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. uh, if, uh, if a handful of good professors went to Puerto Rico, they would get, then it would make a much bigger difference than a handful of professors going to, uh, I don't want to say MIT. I want to say something, a good school that's kind of, it's Long Beach, I guess. Okay. Okay. I mean, Long Beach already has a decent, yeah. decent number of good professors yeah. Puerto versus Puerto Rico, which has, okay, they have okay professors, <laughs> not very good yeah. teachers, but they, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, in, in, in the case of Puerto Rico, if you could resolve some of the administrative issues that the quality of the students would go up very quickly mm -hmm. because then you have all the good, most of the good students in math and most of the good students in, okay, not, all the good students in physics will end up either in my university or in Mayagüez because okay. that's the only two places where you can study physics. Right, okay. So out of the entire Puerto Rican population, you could easily get the good students. Yeah. Versus unlike in the United States where it is very hard to get the good students because there's, there's too many of them. Mm -hmm. There's too many people. Yeah. I mean, I have a question uh, already in my head, but I want to give you the opportunity yeah, go ahead. To, you can give to, the question. to jump in. Right. So it's, um, yeah. So I think that's an important thing to notice, right? I think that's uh, a pretty interesting statement because if I understand your argument, you're, you're saying like uh, basically the impact you can have as an educator, right? Like, so, is um, larger if you were to go to someplace like Puerto Rico, where perhaps there aren't as many, um, or perhaps the quality that you could find at a lot of you know um, major U.S. institutions that have you know this perhaps um, more preparation in terms of like educating and expertise in the field and stuff like that. And so perhaps if if what you care about is increasing the number of people the number of minds that are solving difficult problems and care about solving difficult problems like f physics problems then you should consider you know going to puerto rico or perhaps some you know community which doesn't have availability to your resources such as an educator right so okay so yeah that's the the specific choice i made was that one i mean you right. could i can imagine other other choices for, ex okay, uh, for example, something you would never think of, I, I, I would never think of, is a university who develop, who trains, uh, uh, okay, well, a medical school who trains doctors to go to rural, per to, to go uh, to rural areas or to go around the world to, to mm -hmm. make, to, to, uh, to uh, affect the most amount of people by going to the worst places where you get low, small amounts of good doctors. Yeah. Well, of the many things, you, of the many bad things you can say about Cuba, they have a very good medical school that does exactly that. Mm. I remember when I heard heard that for the first time, I was like, "What?" <laughs> a school who, as one of their aims, is to get people uh, people from all over Latin America, train them, and then send them back, mm -hmm. so that they can make a big impact in the. And all over Latin America. So, I mean, in the United States, that that would mean, in the case of physics, one example of that in our 
or I guess our analogy to in physics would be you could train a physicist to go to places where you normally don't expect. Yeah. But I mean, there are many smart people, I'm sure, in many small towns, or not even small towns, they don't even have to be that small. Uh, yeah. mm -hmm. But who thinks of Mississippi when you think of smart people? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Sorry to Mississippi people from Mississippi. <laughs> <laughs> they don't think of them in Puerto Rico either, so. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so I, like, no, you think about like MIT, Cal like yeah. New York, you think about Cal California, stuff like that. I mean, there's yeah. 50 states. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, and that's only in the that's only the, that's still keeping to the to the idea of like maximizing where you get your pool of students. I mean, uh, there are others that if you give, if I can probably come up with more examples of uh, new things that community maybe could do but just doesn't care yet because they don't have any perhaps cultural history for for them to care in, at large mm -hmm. um but for example uh no keep going so I, I'll, <laughs> I'll try to come up with a second example so we can have a second one and right. i'm not just saying a lot of hot air okay um uh so can I ask a question, I guess? Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Jump in. So, I mean, I guess, what do you think would be more motivating to get more people to be teaching physics, specifically, you know, qualified people mm. who maybe learned physics in some reputable university to go back to these areas of need? And what are the barriers to stop them from going to these areas? Like, you have this goal, you know, you want to... It seems like you want to help your community, right? Yeah. And you want, you want to, in a way change the community and the way maybe mm. physics is taught or in you in the universities you went to um so you can reach more potential physicists who can mm. then like from come from puerto rico and mm. contribute to the field so um what's the barriers for more people to do that and what do you think could encourage more people to do what you're doing as to the barriers i would I, the barriers i can think of are for example reputation like we tend to want to go to places with very high reputations. I get uh, when you're when you're a graduating undergrad, you want to go to MIT and Caltech, even mm -hmm. though you don't really know almost anything about yeah. these places. You just know the name. It's like, oh my God, Caltech, MIT. Uh, so one of the barriers is reputation and how much we care about it. Mm -hmm. uh, second, let me difficulty is uh, when you go to big big institutions with a lot of uh, reputation it's easier to get funding mm -hmm. I mean being the same quality of researcher in a bigger university can more easily you can you have easier access to to grants for example I remember there was a time where in my university we had a scandal about uh, some scandal with with the funding uh, with the NSF funding and for a couple of years I remember we were our professors were getting having a hard harder time getting grants just because of that it has nothing to do with the quality of research it has to do with the bad reputation of the university um so yeah in that sense there are things that the person can't do to to improve the situation and in terms of incentivizing i don't know i mean my reason is purely uh love for my community i guess i mean like a yeah. emotional connection to my to where I used to come and I wanted to go back uh, I mean you could also you can always 
artificially go to a few universities and say, oh, God, the NSF could, you could envision the NSF going to, I don't know, take 10 decent universities, 10, like, I don't know, middle to low middle quality, say, I'm going to fund you 10 positions or five positions for the mm -hmm. next five to 10 years of your university can take those five positions in five or 10 years and keep and like like an initial investment in the universities mm -hmm. in middle to lower middle or lower universities. That's something they could do. Um, and if in the universities that take advantage of that, then they can, they can do probably do a lot. Cause I mean, yeah. if you suddenly get five professors and you, and you treat them well and you keep them, uh, you, I don't know, I don't know how to say like feed them what they need. <laughs> yeah. Um, they'll grow and then they can make a decent department. I mean, with five. Yes, of course. That's something that could, that could happen. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. But without the initial funding, they can't do that. That's, that's something that can be done. Yeah. I mean, I would say the primary, um, thing that's holding people back from going back to these communities and having a bigger, bigger impact is money. Right. So it's related to funding, but, yeah. um, a little d distinct in the fact that like, um, I know for instance, if you're studying to become a medical doctor, right. Mm -hmm. A lot of people end up becoming, um, specialized in a certain topic or a certain part of the body, right. Because you'll get paid a lot more than a general practitioner mm -hmm. who takes care of like just a wide gamut of issues for the family. Right. And so I think it's a very similar instance of the distinction, like, so you're getting an incentive in both aspects, I think, like in this treating the medical um, example from the program you referenced in Cuba, right? The incentive that you're getting, right, for going to these, um, this, uh, I, I don't know the, the proper word, these disadvantaged communities, right? Yeah. So um, is that you're promoting the you're <laughs> perhaps the wrong word, but exploiting this um, emotional um, reaction towards helping people, right? Your altruistic tendencies, right? That's the incentive. Um, but you also have to recognize that that incentive is coming at a sacrifice of if you were to go to the United States and become a specialist in whatever, you're sacrificing this potential, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, right? So it's a, it's a difference in, it's a difference in, you know, uh, perspective and ideology. And, um, so I guess it, you could say it's a byproduct of a capitalistic society, right. In terms of, um, in the West, I guess you, a lot of people feel that you have to take care of yourself first and then your community and elsewhere it could be the opposite. Right. And so perhaps fixing this issue of finding people that are qualified to moving to um, areas where they could have a greater impact has to do with a much deeper issue of, you know, them being able to find um, enough value in terms of helping people versus helping themselves. So I don't know. I want to get you guys to take that. <laughs> I said a lot there, so I, I want to see how you guys feel about that. Go ahead. I mean, that's definitely... that. That to a certain extent is definitely going on. Mm. Um, it did remind me though that my brother's girlfriend is studying medicine. Mm. Uh, 
And oddly enough, I, I, I wouldn't have expected this, but in Puerto Rico, there's a lot of special subspecialties that are not that, there are not that many people. There's a handful, if any. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember her saying, uh, if I forgot exactly what kind of doctor she said, but which is the kind of doctor she wanted to be. If I become this kind of doctor and I go to the west part of the island, so the, for context, like the metropolis area of the big city, big city in quotes <laughs> and Puerto Rico is in San Juan which is in north central central eastern a little bit east area of Puerto Rico she said if I go to the south I'll make tons of money because there aren't just there I will be the only specialist there right so every single person in the west side of the island will just have to come, will come to me because I'm the only one that can treat them yeah um, so sometimes I don't know if, I wonder I sometimes I wonder if that could be a general thing that's going on that People aren't think either. They're not thinking of, oh wait, there's, there's this market over here. Let's say put in, yeah, I guess the capitalist yeah. uh, wording. There's <laughs> this market over here that I could exploit immensely, but because I'm focused in the big city, for example, which is why I mentioned the reputation. Yeah. If I'm focused on being in the big place with the big people, then I don't want to go there. Yeah. And that also reminds me something very curious. I remember my my brother's girlfriend telling me um there's this one scientist in the metal school which is apparently like a huge big shot in uh fear research i, I think it was more like he studied the reaction of fear from in, in animals mm-hmm. and he was one of the biggest people in the world about this and i remember her telling me yeah i mean he likes being here partly one of the reasons he likes being here is because he's the big <laughs> he's the huge fish yeah, yeah he's not the big fish he's the huge fish yeah unlike in if he were in what is it princeton medical school which is a really big one right yeah then he would be another big fish yeah so i wonder if that's also something some people aren't always aren't thinking about it's like you can be the big fish in the big <laughs> with the big fish or you can be the huge fish with uh, either medium or small fish i guess yeah yeah yeah, I mean, that is something I was also aware about that, you know, in terms of doctors in rural areas, actually, that is an interesting counterpoint in the fact that um, I do know you could go to more rural areas mm. and get paid a lot more, but you're sacrificing, you know, perhaps being around a lot more things to do and yeah. fr- friends and things of the nature. Yeah. But um, yeah, and the, the point that you just brought up, I think, is something that um, really impacts mental health in terms of graduate school, right, mm. is um, I think it's always important to feel like you're at least close to equal footing with your peers, mm-hmm. right? Like rather than, you know, being a big fish in a small pond, being a, you know, a big fish in a big pond, right? So like if if you're just one of um, many students and you your perspective is that they're more qualified than you, that they're more prepared, you know, feeding, it can feed into this imposter syndrome of like, you feel like you don't deserve to be there and you feel like, you know, people are going to find you out and, um, and that, that can really have a negative impact in terms of your mental health and therefore your, your own sense of value in your work in terms of graduate school. So I, I don't know if you guys, um, see that in your own particular experience, I guess, um, like perhaps I could invite, uh, invite you to jump in. Like, um, What's your experience, Irene, in terms of in do you compare yourself ever to your peers, and um, 
how does how do you feel about that like in general i guess yeah i mean i think it's natural for the most part for people to compare themselves to the others around them to as a check to see whether they are where they're supposed to be i guess in terms of where you are in the environment that you are in the moment um i think it's a natural thing so of course i do it um i would say that i never really feel that i am at the level that at the big let's say i i wouldn't say that i feel i'm at the level of the majority let's say you know mm-hmm. what i mean so um i usually tend to feel like i am not good enough to be let's say studying physics or in this program or doing theory um so i don't feel like i am for some reason have the capabilities to be successful in what i am passionate about but at the same time i know that it's probably a combination of factors that I've encountered up to this point that have kind of created this perception in my mind that I am not of the mind that's capable of doing this specific type of work, which um, I don't think is necessarily true. I feel like if someone is passionate and interested in a topic, they should have the freedom to explore what they're interested in, period. You know, um, I think that in general in the culture, it seems like a lot of times, I mean, maybe it's getting better, who knows, but it seems like there's like an emphasis on these specific type of mind and type of skills that a person needs to have to be able to be successful in this area of physics, let's say, specifically theory, let's say, um, that there's this idea that there's only like a specific type of person that can can pursue this path, Um where I feel like it should be more like if you have the passion, interest, and drive to explore these questions and you want to work in this area, that you should have the full freedom to do that. And it's your choice whenever it occurs. If you want to choose maybe I'm not getting far in this and there's something else I want to explore, then you can change. Um, but I think there is toxicity in the culture right now where even like it's not even if it's not overtly spoken, I feel like it's there's it's there it's this idea that you either it's like you have to be the super genius to do particle theory or um yeah i mean you have to have some level of like iq or something to do particle theory that kind of idea where i don't think it's helpful because i think it kind of throws away a lot of people who mine might work differently but also could contribute as a whole um with all the different diversity of mind that i think is necessary so I think that particularly I've probably been subjected to seeing that the culture values a specific type of person that I don't necessarily feel like I fit in with that type of person. So I've definitely felt like I am not good enough to be there, but there is enough passion and interest in that subject that I still do it anyway. So it's kind of like a struggle, I guess, every day to kind of tell myself, no, 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 like I'm not an imposter. I deserve to be here. Um, I'm interested in this. That's really what's driving me. And I have to keep going for what I'm interested in and what drives me right. So I um, have to keep pushing through that barrier. Um, but I think that that's a part of the culture that needs to be bring into light, needs to be discussed, and I think it needs to change, personally. I mean, there's more things I could say, but I want to see your perspective, Gabe, on what you think about the culture in general and imposter syndrome. And yeah. I mean... Uh, expectations. and. Yeah, I, I agree with you with that that kind of mentality is definitely predominant at least in the in the theory part from what i can see at least in like in the high energy 
uh, condensed matter kind of, at least from the professors I've I can see from condensed matter, high energy theory, they seem to be like the kind of people that are just super intense. Like, and also this a lot of the students are very intense. They're very just driven to do that one thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, like if, if I think about the the like the the icons of high energy theory. Feynman and Schrodinger. Yeah, I mean Feynman was kind of a, a clown a little bit, but he was <laughs> he, within that clown. He was an insanely obsessive person in terms of yeah. how intense he was with his physics, and like it's like that's the kind of people that uh, I guess molded them the mindset and to a large extent in physics. Like I don't know if some other subfields are slightly different. Like I don't know anything about biophysics. But yeah, yeah, exactly. So maybe really hopefully that. it's different in those other areas. But I would definitely say like in the what we've been seeing i would agree mm-hmm. with your assessment like about the culture it's very very intense um and i would say really don't uh if for people who do get imposter syndrome i've i, I don't have a huge problem with imposter syndrome i've felt it a few times mm-hmm. um not because i can not so much comparing myself to other students that can do the work that i can't mostly more in the sense that uh the professors gave me work that i can do like <laughs> am I good enough to like this is what yeah. they expect of me I can't do it am I good enough I, mm-hmm. or I just get exhausted to the point that it's like do I even like this anymore like, <laughs> yeah yeah that's of course. happened that to me a few to, times yeah. um and, and to be honest like every so far like it after a day or two it just goes by mm-hmm. uh maybe I take a rest or something and it subsides um but yeah if people that get imposter syndrome I would say like don't take too seriously the idea of like, am I, should I be here? And like, you're here. Mm-hmm. Forget it. If it's fair, who cares? You're here. Uh, what ma- if it's fair for the next person to get here? I don't know, but you're already there. Just forget about whether it's fair or not, or you deserve to be there or not. You're there. Like, so that, I guess, I think that's something I would say to people who get imposter syndrome, and at least in the case of physics, like forget about the, forget about the, do I deserve it? Do I, should I be here? And, uh, forget about that question you're here just just do what you can if your professor throws you out of the group then okay <laughs> that's that's a different issue though yeah yeah um but if it's you telling yourself oh i shouldn't be here nah, forget about it you're here to yeah be honest um we had a conversation about a similar kind of thing when juan mejia was on mm. and um so in general i agree with your assessment of um how uh, it's not very useful to dwell on, to overthink these things about whether or not you deserve to be here. At, but at the same point, I just want to add that, you know, um, there is inherent utility in that feeling. And that's what I'm trying to exploit now is because the utility is that this feeling of imposter syndrome is kind of like a reaction to, well, for me personally, it's a reaction to s- some things that I he- feel are systemically wrong with the field in terms of how it's putting um, barriers in front of me and other people. And um, this feeling is kind of what is telling me that there is something wrong here, right? And so because I am now aware of the fact that there's something wrong, I am now in a position where I could do something about it, right? If I could be self-reflective of that feeling to the point where I could at least adequately, you know, try to diagnose where this is coming from, this feeling, 
suddenly I feel like I am empowered in the sense that I can suddenly change the community in terms of, oh, this is where this feeling is coming from. Now I can try to shape the community to be different, right? So that it's not, so that it's not as toxic or it's better for, you know, future generations kind of thing. So I agree that it's not going to happen in our generation, right? I can't just instantly change the field. Even if I could, I don't know if I'd want to, but like, um, so it's like tough. I'm going to have to deal with that, right? I'm going to, however I come to terms with, you know, the shit that comes toss my way, I'm going to have to deal with that, right? But I think it um, is interesting in the fact that, you know, these hardships are what gives me insight in terms of providing for the community around me. Oh, that's a fair point. And hmm. I mean, this we're clarifying more like, I say, I easily say, just don't think about it too much. I've been there. It's not easy not to think about it. It's like, yeah. Um, yeah. you have to find our ways of solving things. And I mean, yeah, being reflective is almost always a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, I mean, part of life is just figuring out how you solve, how you deal with life. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I have a related question. It's, it's, it's very similar, but it's not the same. Um, how do you feel um, about um, your place in physics? Like what, um, what is your level of confidence in terms of like your, the skills that you have? Do you feel like you're an expert? Do you feel like you're close to being an expert? Um, do you feel like you know nothing? Where on that spectrum do you feel like you lie? I definitely don't think I'm close to being an expert. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, I do feel a bit of frustration that I don't, I don't feel myself capable of answering, like asking myself quite uh, important questions yet in, the, in my own field. Like I do hadron physics. Uh, I specifically work in what's called the, in the glue X experiment. And I still don't, can't sit down and say, okay, come up with a good come up with a question and say, okay, yeah, this is a good question. I still, I still don't feel like I can do that, which is kind of annoying to me. Mm-hmm. Um, what level I would say I'm at, I, that's a hard one to say, but I would say that I've learned a few skills that allow me to do what I guess has to be done in terms of the research, like the skills that involve doing the research but I still don't have a sense of, or a perspective perhaps, in terms of this is why we're here, this is why we're doing it, this is what we should do. Like, I still don't have, I kind of know why we're here, because I've been reading, like I've gone on my way to read a lot of papers. I, even, I convinced a few of the other Hadron uh, physics students, uh, to okay, let's take a Wednesday and start reading a paper every Wednesday and talk about it a little bit. Uh, so I know a little, I understand somewhat why we're here. Um, exactly what are we, like, what are we doing? I still am trying to figure out in terms of the technical part, like, uh, cause I mean, I work in a big experiment, which has several layers of software that and processing that if I could, I could easily do my research without even knowing it existed. Yeah. Um, and then the physics that has to be involved with it, um, I don't have, I don't need equations anymore. And for the most part, I, I, which is completely different from every physics class mm-hmm. I've ever had. I don't know about you guys. Mm-hmm. Like the only teaches is how to solve equations, but this time, 
no, they're not trying to solve any questions. I'm not trying to use pen and paper or anything. I'm just trying to think like usually my advisor just thinks conceptually like I think these things should happen. Therefore, these are the right variables and this is the kind of thing we want. This is the kind of analysis we want to do. Okay. That's completely different from anything I've done in any <laughs> class. <laughs> Uh, they've taught me to solve integrals and to solve partial different differential equations and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Irene, do you want to jump in first? No, you go ahead. <laughs> I don't really have much to say on that. Okay. Regard. Yeah. Well, so in, in my personal experience, it's I do have to do math and stuff like that. I, I um, so at first there was like I, I was about to name drop, but I'm going to avoid the temptation. Um, so I've done like order of magnitude calculations in terms of physics. So I did have to use like some stuff I learned in dynamics and stuff like that. Um, and then at that point, once we got to a point where we asked a question, I don't know how much it was me asking the questions or it was me being guided to ask the questions. So it's difficult for me to say how prepared I feel on that aspect. But um, now it's just like a lot of statistical analysis and stuff. So I am still writing equations it's just strictly math though not physics and and then so when i write those equations that's like 10 percent of the time and then the other 90 percent is trying to code those equations yeah. and make sure that they work the way i want them to work and so um yeah so it's still not <laughs> it's still mainly not the skills i was taught in classes even though it's like a theory group yeah. and stuff like that so i mean that's my personal experience um and I don't know if you have anything to add to that. I mean, I don't think I've done as much as research as you in mm. general, mm. or you either. So, and then I just started joining this new group, so I'm just reading up on material. Um, but I would say that, yeah, there's probably depending on whether you're doing the theory experimental, you're going to be seeing obviously more of the equations. So when I worked a little bit in nuclear theory, it was mostly coding like you said 10% manipulating an equation and then now I'm figuring out how can I code a specific potential um, using C yeah so it was mostly it was minimal kind of a you know manipulating equation and then a lot of it was coding yeah I don't know how this new group will be so <laughs> we'll let you know when yeah. I figure it out <laughs> yeah we'll wait for the updates but um so Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about how you ended up in Hadron Physics. And um, so I guess like it's one thing to be motivated to pursue physics and then it's another thing to end up. Physics is so broad that mm. you could literally end up anywhere on the spectrum. So how did you end up deciding Hadron Physics? Uh, so uh, in our university, we uh, for the first year students every Friday, they have a, like a small seminar kind of thing where they bring in the professors from our univer from the department to talk about the research and usually they're divided by topic of course uh, and so I would go every Friday to us uh, I was initially more interested in a little more in interested in theory um, than, ex than experiment uh, but then as I saw most of the, prof at the of the groups, I kind of started discarding people like condensed matter theory, condensed matter, not my thing. So that's kind of out. Nuclear structure reaction, uh, kind of, maybe. Uh, but I think it was mostly because I liked 
uh, one of the things I like the most about the Hadron group when they gave their talk was like the the atmosphere between the three professors, like more relaxed, like more friendly. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was, and I and I liked what they were doing. Um, so I decided, okay, I'll go for you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, I think first I uh, there were three, so there's three professors. I think the first for the first one I was interested in, he had too many students. So I, I went to the second one, um, who I'm, I also liked. I liked his presentation and his attitude. And I've had a good experience with him for, what is it, a year and a half now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in retrospect, mm-hmm. how do you feel about ending up in the experimental slash Hadron group? Um, do you wish that you would have went somewhere else or do you feel pretty content? I feel content. Um, so, I mean, uh, I will say that for the most part, I think I would have liked most physics I'd done. Mm-hmm. Um, had I done it with a professor I liked <laughs> or with a, uh, uh, the rest of the group uh, in the group, the, uh, uh, the rest of the group that I was working with, I, I think uh, when you like physics, you for general, generally like most of physics. Mm-hmm. And in my case, at least, uh, I think having a good group of people with which to work with was uh, very important me liking what I was doing. I mean, I know other people don't, wouldn't have that issue. I, I know some people that uh, want to do condensed matter theory and they all they care about is having the, a great professor that does great research and stuff like that. And other people, no. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so that's something that, I mean, this other perspective that you mentioned is something that uh, I and I guess the thesis of the podcast kind of yeah. comes into conflict with rather frequently in terms of um, I don't think it can be understated the importance of a welcoming community and stuff like that and so when Sahana was on the podcast recently we talked a lot about um, why is it that women um, are a much larger distribution of the of the population in terms of astronomy PhDs compared to physics PhDs. So like the numbers, I, I, I looked them up. Um, like for instance, um, astronomy has 40% women um, get PhDs and in physics it's 16%, right? So okay. Sahana's hypothesis was that it's a much more welcoming community, which I'm inclined to agree with. Um, in general, I think I get this impression that astronomy and astrophysics astrophysics is a little more laid back and um, in terms of the professors and they're a little more welcoming and supportive and things like that. And we talk about a lot of other reasons as to why that could be the case. But um, specifically in the story that you brought up, it seems very poignant in the the fact that it kind of relates to how you were talking about your experience um, going into accounting is kind of like, you know, uh, you know, you had to do something, right? (laughs) So it's just like, um, you kind of just ended up there more or less. Right. Yeah. And, um, and so I think that's a very clear case of like the community having an impact of like who you see in your environment and stuff like that. Um, so I just think that's interesting. Uh, so, um, okay. And one other thing I wanted to touch on is, um, how do you feel currently about your relationship with your advisor? Do you guys, do you feel pretty comfortable with him? Do you feel like he's a pretty cool guy and stuff? More? Yeah. 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 Uh, 
He's general, yeah, he's a good guy. I like him. I like working with, him, with him, working with him. Yeah, yeah. So I was just gonna say that. I mean, I don't want to talk too much here because it's about you. But um, I don't think it could be understated the importance of having an advisor that you know that there's mutual respect and is supportive of you and is welcoming and um, everything could be copacetic in terms of how you guys communicate because. Um, for those of you who don't know, like in physics, it's kind of like a master apprentice kind of thing. Um, like you have a very um, meaningful, impactful relationship with your advisor and the fact that you guys are working together for, you know, four plus years on a project and your relationship really dictates a lot of how you're going to feel in graduate school. Right. And so um, I think that's also why this these ideas of like what it is to be a physicist and like in terms of um, these ideas of like specific ways of thinking, like a specific mind, you have to perform in this way to consider yourself a physicist can be really toxic, right? Because if you're going to be in relation with a person who feels this way, you're going to have to meet that expectation for, you know, four plus years of your life. And it's really going to be to the detriment of you. So that's why I personally would never be the type of person that, would be like, oh, I just want to make an impact in my field, you know, so I'm just going to go for the best person in the field because it's possible and maybe even likely that the person that's going to be great in their field can be kind of an asshole, <laughs> right? And um, so anyways, um, I don't know. How do you feel? Yeah, feel I mean, I 100% like for me personally, I need to feel like I have a respect, like that we have mutual respect with my advisor it has to be an open like uh, environment where I don't I feel safe to express my ideas even though I might at first feel like the idea might be stupid or something I have to feel like I have the ability to, to express what I'm thinking and ask questions right even yeah. if they're stupid and not feel like I'm going to be judged by my advisor um you know in a negative way so I definitely think that for me number one is I have to have that that community that environment um where i can feel safe right um and it seems like you that was your number one priority too right in finding a group would you say um like if you didn't feel comfortable in the group would you have stayed or would you have found another group no in fact i did change group i mean uh, the first i originally was in nuclear theory i didn't like uh it wasn't a bad experience with the professor but i just did i didn't think there uh, what was it like there was chemistry I guess yeah um so I changed um and so in my case I definitely value it a lot yeah uh, yeah being able to go into his office and mumble things and like oh is this your question yes that's my question Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um so yeah that's for me that's definitely something important uh I mean there are there are people that just don't don't care about that I mean yeah. and I mean I don't know what the what the solution to that is I mean because I, I suspect physics will always be a field <laughs> that attracts very obsessive, very uh, can people like some types of people that can be very harsh sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think my I think I would say that I would advise people who are looking for advisors uh, to know to get know make sure you know yourself and what kind of <laughs> is is having advice that you like important to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
Because, I mean, there, okay, so actually something else that can happen is there, you have an advisor that you just don't care about <laughs> at all. Mm. And so he doesn't motivate you. You don't motivate him. That's also kind of like a bland relationship. You, If you're going to do a PhD, I, I re- highly recommend getting someone you can, one, gets you excited, two, you get him excited, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's definitely, at least for people like us, I guess, would be a very, very important thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're not the kind of person that needs that, well, I guess. Good for yeah. you, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, do do know yourself. Talk to people on your yeah try to try to get advice from people who know the people around you around the the okay actually now i'm i'm assuming you're in the you're for your first year in a in a graduate program yeah that's if, fine that's fine if yeah. you're a first year in a graduate program i would say like talk to the the rest of the students yeah uh people that you feel like you can trust and can give you good advice know yourself what kind of professor you like hmm. um you probably like <laughs> i would recommend someone that you like mm-hmm. uh but yeah yeah, I mean, it's really good advice. Yeah. I think it's uh, the most important thing in terms of your yeah. experience in graduate school. Would, yeah. Um, yeah. So we, we've kind of talked about our perceived issues mm-hmm. with the field for a bit. Perhaps you could tell us what is your perspective on, like, what is the biggest problem with the field currently, um, if there is any problems socially in general or something in terms of like the structure, or maybe there's like some bad ideas in the field of like how professorship works, testing, education, the culture, anything like that. What do you think is the most, the worst mm. <laughs> offender in terms of problems with the field? The worst offender? Um, I'm not sure which one's the worst offender. Or offenders. I, I mean, you're yeah. not yeah, limited. I guess I'll, I'll, <laughs> I can start complaining about education, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's start there. It's always an easy one, right? Yeah. No, I mean, I, to be honest, for example, so I'm an experimentalist, and I have realized that I don't need to solve any, I, in my research, I have not needed to solve any equations, and I have needed a lot of statistical thinking to be able to do my research, at least. Mm-hmm. Two things which I have, in my, what, f- four or five years of undergrad of physics, and now two years of graduate school have not have not received almost any statistical training um and i have received almost no physical like physics uh problem solving without equations like uh here's the mm-hmm. problem what do you think is without using any equations like tell me what how do you, what are the physics that's going on mm-hmm. um those two things i are things that uh I have, I feel like I've needed, and I have not. I don't think I've received at all in my education. Um, and so you're gonna force us to take so many classes. Then I would hope that mm-hmm. they're yeah. uh, they're gonna help me for the most part. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, actually, I'm an experimentalist, and you guys two are theorists. So I don't know <laughs> if that's a general experimentalist uh, complaint. Uh, mm. Maybe if you get more experimentalist, you can ask them. (laughs) Um, But yeah, and I would say education is also so focused on just solving like physics problems that for some reason are important. Hmm. Not always very clearly. They're not always clearly. It's not always clear why they're important, Hmm. or what the implicate what the important implications of them are. For example, like I can 
uh, it's clear why the hi solving the hydrogen atom problem is important. Mm -hmm. But what are all the consequences of solving that? Is like something uh, none of my classes I've ever gone into deep into much about. Like, okay, uh, this is the result. Okay, these are all the great things that have come from it. There, this is why this is why the hydrogen atom is so important mm -hmm. because it's the basis. Yeah, they say, oh, it's the basis for all these other things, but they never say what all these things are. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's always been a complaint I've had. Yeah. Um, what else? Uh, yeah. Uh, did you guys do research in your undergrad? I didn't do any research. My my department just almost in, didn't incent, almost pushed you away from doing any research until the very very end. Hmm. Uh, that's. I think that was maybe a problem in my department but yeah that's a complaint i would have yeah um yeah computer com computers uh programming skills yeah yeah I, for sure, it's 100%. a three for three <laughs> we needed programming and it's uh it's becoming a very important thing it's like so yeah and yet i think in my department there was only one computer science class for for scientists yeah. i don't know about you guys have you mm. had any no, I mean, there weren't that. Well, there was a computer science department, but in physics, there was no requirement to t take any computer science classes or mm -hmm. learn any programming, which or I agree. Physics, like, or science, computer science for scientists. No, classes. they didn't have something mm -hmm. like that, no. Yeah. Um, I, had a, I took a Mathematica class. I don't remember if it was required or not, but that was the only coding thing yeah. that they had in terms of physics so. i don't know if they, i don't know if i would count mathematics <laughs> yeah that so, much because i mean yeah it's not a very uh i guess it's a great language but yeah so it's there's a lot hidden behind the scenes right? yeah I mean, and so. it's, it's not that useful when you want to do more mm -hmm. yeah less high level stuff more low level stuff is not that good as far as i know yeah yeah it's pretty frustrating coding in like four loops for example yeah like if you need to iterate over if you need to do some calculation over and over and over. It's kind of frustrating to deal with that. And yeah, so I, I think condensed matter physicists use Mathematica no, a good bit. Do. Yeah, but um, most others, you know. Yeah, I do Z++. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then in terms of research, like um, I did do research for a while, like two years mm. um, in condensed matter experiment because um pretty much all the professors at long beach <laughs> do research in condensed matter there was there was one professor that the, did research in astrophysics which i was interested in back in then and i basically just emailed all the professors saying like can i work with you and uh um so i ended up at condensed matter because we got a new professor and she needed students um but in terms of like whether they pushed me to do that, they it was kind of just like this thing. They said, "Oh, you should do research if mm. you know you're thinking about going to grad school." There's never really any like. It wasn't that important. Mm. They didn't yeah. place that much emphasis on it. They just said, "Oh, like kind of as a passing comment, like oh, you should think about doing research." Mm. And um, so it was me being self motivated that I ended up there. And so, what about yeah? What about same you? for me? I had that. I mean. There are people who did research, yes, but again, it's like more self-motivated. I, I feel like maybe they're doing better in terms of like trying to give out, you know, expose the resources for the students. They didn't back then. They were just like you said, they would be like, oh, you, if you're thinking of going to grad school, maybe you should do some research instead of 
kind of being more structured about it and giving us more of the resources and like kind of helping us one-on-one and mm. or not even if, if it's possible one-on-one my school was small there were only mm. it was an all-woman's school and there are only eight physics majors in my year so mm. we could have each had easily individual advising to help us figure out the process of trying to find a research um for the summer or for a few yeah, years and if you want to go to grad school you kind of almost yeah but i mean back then no one really they didn't really emphasize that or Mm. give me those details i don't know about in your school so they didn't discuss it so it's not like i even realized that it was such an important element to get into grad school that i had to do undergraduate research for a good Mm. amount of time right and i feel like nowadays it's so competitive that you really do need to have that on top of it on top of like perfect grades and whatever else you need so yeah uh let's see another complaint i guess i would have would be like graduate school at least the first year the first two years uh so i'm in my second year and i did not take all the all the what's called the core courses the the first six courses that you usually have to take in a graduate school Uh, so i've met most of the first years in 2017 and 2018 uh and it seems borderline at least in this university my university borderline unhealthy <laughs> the amount of work they ask mm-hmm. you to do in the first year and borderline unhealthy also means un- like counterproductive to most of the students i mean there there's always a handful of exceptions that can are just so good that they can deal with all the yeah. work or they can deal with all the stress or whatever but for the most part it seems very counterproductive the level of work they're asking you to do in the first year um not to mention that sometimes i question <laughs> how useful <laughs> Oh, yeah. Why there? Why all of them are? Why there's so many mandatory courses? Um, yeah. Coming back to my previous complaint, okay, I take six core courses. The only thing that resembles stati- statistics is statistical mechanics, but those of us, those who have taken statistical mechanics, know it's not quite statistics in the statistics sense, in yeah. like the mathematics, the mathematical statistics kind of sense. Yeah. It's uh, has the name, but it's very different. Um. So yeah, they board, they demand all of these classes, and like sometimes the the applicability, at least from my perspective, seems questionable sometimes. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, that's something I haven't reflected on too much lately. But um, yeah, I guess I agree in the fact that it feels like a little um, antiquated in terms of the classes we're taught. It's mm-hmm. just like historically they might be important for mm-hmm. physics, right? I mean. Um, I guess you should know for most fields like dynamics and maybe, I don't know. It's yeah, I guess there's a lot of baggage, right? You're just taught a lot of these classes and they're not properly motivated. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, I guess I would agree that if we streamline that process, I think people could, you know, be a lot more fruitful in their careers and stuff like that. Or at least well motivated. I mean, I think, I think the, that's a, I guess that's also a criticism I would have, at least in my undergraduate experience. The lack of motivation for what you're doing is... Uh, it, one can can deter from your understanding of the, of the subject. I mean, some, oftentimes, like, good, like a good motivating fact can uh, give you perspective on and as to why you're doing this and why it's important. Like, good motivation can be a very important for you being motivated... Wait, am I repeating myself? Good, uh, good motivation can be important for yeah. I guess motivating your motivating the students, okay, um, and for 
giving a allowing you to understand why things are the way they are, mm-hmm. like because uh, I mean, uh, for example, like I think one of the reasons they insist on still keep teaching so much classical mechanics is because all the other theories are kind of based on those kinds of ideas. Yeah. Um, even though, as far as I know, no textbook or well, no, I guess there are textbooks that sometimes mention it, but. Uh, one of the one important reason for classical mechanics is the fact that it builds in the easiest way what what will be done either more generally or slightly differently in the in the future. Yeah. But if that is not a very if you if you don't keep that in mind when you're doing classical mechanics, then you're kind of well, I don't want to say wasting your time, but you're not taking advantage of what you're doing because right. um, the purpose is more in the future than it is now because. Uh, as far as I know, most research doesn't use classical mechanics really in yeah. almost any sense. Yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's less clear than like mathematics in terms of yeah. Or how, mechanics, I mean. yeah, how these classes are f- foundational to one another, like yeah. in what ways you need one to do the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's interesting. Um, okay, if we could take a step back, I'd like to ask you a little more of a fun question i guess is um a question that came up on sahana's podcast Mm. that i'd like to pitch to you is um we were talking about aliens okay right and so um we had a hypothetical alien walk through our front door right and you are allowed to ask it any question that you want in terms of like learning something about physics okay if there's anything that you would ask this alien what is your first instinct? <laughs> What's my first instinct? <laughs> I don't know. If I could... So I'm assuming I get whatever I ask him, I learn like very well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can I ask him to teach me QFT? <laughs> <laughs> or is that too much? No. You, you can ask anything. Anything. Yeah. Um, so there are... I mean, okay, no. significantly more advanced than us, right? So they've figured out things. Yeah, they, ju- they can they can explain QFT in two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, maybe they could even beam information. Actually, I guess mind. I guess one of my more curious, one of the questions I would, re- it really they they really did solve everything. I would I would want to know why does quantum mechanics work? Um, because I mean that seems to me like a question. Like, I mean I've I've. So kind of looking around YouTube and you find very, very prominent physicists, uh, theoretical physicists that are brilliant at what they do. And it seems to me they still don't have enough remotely. <laughs> seems to me that they really don't have any good reasoning for, for using quantum, for why quantum mechanics works other than it, or sorry, why use quantum mechanics, why, why quantum mechanics is true other than it works. And whole bunch of i mean i guess they have other arguments but they're all just as weird as quantum mechanics that like they all use this like i was reading something about qft and they started talking about infinite degrees of freedom to ex- to explain locality it's like what the heck does infinite degrees of freedom mean <laughs> yeah what does that even mean yeah i don't know if you could answer that point at all because right i haven't because <laughs> <laughs> i haven't taken qft so I don't yeah know. to be fair i haven't taken qft either <laughs> um yeah so doesn't seem to me like the quantum mechanics is all that well motivated I yeah think. yeah i mean that's pretty interesting i mean i agree with you um because juan's podcast the other 
the other Juan that um, was on the podcast, his episode is up now. Um, he has the perspective that we do understand quantum mechanics. Um, it's not a very popularly uh, held belief. But um, when he was on the podcast, um, I think he did kind of agree with us in the sense that like we don't understand the the physical underpinnings of quantum mechanics so to me that's not understanding it um mm -hmm. so it's yeah it's a mystery right as to as to like how to interpret this thing there's um just the mere fact that there's all these different interpretations to it signifies that um we don't really understand it right because because it has the freedom to be all these different ways that are perhaps mutually exclusive mm -hmm. but yeah so that's interesting that's one definite prominent mystery in physics that would be good to know um i think that harkens back to your interest in philosophy a yeah. little bit more <laughs> <laughs> yeah um okay so if i were so that makes me curious if i were to broaden the scope you could ask it anything the alien anything anything not related to physics then because that seems oh. like a very physics uh, ne uh niche answer so yeah yeah um any question i could ask I guess I would I want to ask what's the thing that matters between people because for example if you start listening to economists they're going to start talking about uh, incentive structures for example or they might have their kind of like Marxist kind of thing they'll start talking about structures or stuff like that um, if you start listening to uh, what are they called the postmodernists I think they're called they often talk about like like systems of oppression and stuff like that, and and something like if you if you go to a, to a bunch of different disciplines to talk or like social science or like psychology and the, they'll start giving you answers that they don't necessarily exclude each other, but oftentimes they it's just not even clear how one talks to one has anything to do with the other. Mm -hmm. I guess maybe one question would be what what's the thing that matters between people, or I guess I need a I need a motive. Uh, for uh for them to coexist at well okay so is that like is it fair to rephrase that as how do you live like a moral life in, like in, in a society or no because the problem is even morality has the issue that it doesn't know, it doesn't know when to stop like if you can perfectly say what is a moral person then you're screwed why so because i mean for example if as far as I can tell, if I were a completely moral person, I would have to go sacrifice my life for the people in, I, I hate to use the cliche example, but in Africa, hmm. who, are, who are starving, <laughs> and I have a huge amount of knowledge that can help them. Yeah. Why don't I just go there and help them? Yeah. I, I, I have no moral good reason to do it, other than, and not to mention that morals, like, they have no predefined like how do you choose the morals right i mean so i i don't want to go down this rabbit hole specifically <laughs> but like, yeah. but uh i think irene and i have like a interesting uh stance on this uh, well at least i do pers personally is um i'm not i wouldn't say i'm convinced but i am 
I think it's an interesting argument that morals could be objective. I think there is a case to be made there. But um, that's a whole, that's going to take hours to, <laughs> to unpack why I feel that way, right? Yeah. So, um, okay, but so you don't mean a moral life. Uh, so what is it that, could you clarify a little bit more as to like what matters between people? Like, what do you mean matters? Matters in, in what? Okay. <laughs> so I guess the question is, I guess what I care about is, uh, is that people can, I don't even want to say that they get along well, cause I don't care. If they don't keep, if they don't care. <laughs> I don't care if two people don't care about each other or even dislike each other, as long as they don't fight and cause other people problems, for example. Mm. Uh, so that's why it's kind of hard to say. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm curious as to why is it that sometimes people that don't like each other can can still coexist, mm -hmm. but people who agree on almost everything can still start fighting about the most minuscule things. Yeah. Uh, so that's why I phrased it like that. Okay. So so perhaps I guess I, it's coexistence. What, yeah. What's the thing that matters for there to be? I guess peaceful coexistence. Okay. I guess it would be right. Yeah. Like curious. Yeah. So that's where I was going. So like, um, the question, perhaps, if I get another shot at rephrasing, is in what way should society structure itself so that it can optimize peaceful cohabitation between uh. spooky, ominous? <laughs> <laughs> it's like never. That will never happen. <laughs> no, You're asking the wrong question. <laughs> it's the aliens answering you. <laughs> Um, what was your phrasing again? Does what, that how do fair? we have to structure ourselves to... Yeah, how, how should society structure itself such that um, human beings can live peacefully amongst each other? Mm. Um, I'm not sure you can phrase it like that because I, I don't like the word structure. Okay. <laughs> Some, I mean, because... Right. The problem usually with places... Well, okay, so usually when you have a structure... I can't imagine a structure being capable of uh, accepting all the possible configurations, I guess, yeah. of coexistence, if that makes sense. Okay. Uh, peaceful coexistence, because that's the one I care about. Mm -hmm. um, so you're saying like once you're defining something? Once you put a structure, it seems to me that either, uh, I, I suspect that always, you will at some point start having people fight because of the structure. I mean, structures incentivize things, right? Mm -hmm. And these incentivize things. But you always, I, I suspect that you always randomly, I mean, you, you can always get someone that doesn't fit into any part of the structure, of right? Mm -hmm. so yeah. I don't, that's why I don't know if the structure is the right idea to use. Principle. I mean, it could be dynamic, though. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah. I, Maybe structure just implies to you that it's a little more rigid and how it's defined. Maybe, but principles also have issues, right? Because, <laughs> um, I mean, principles can start clashing with each other. Yeah. Well, so then... Which is a usual, which is often a problem in morality, right? Yeah. It starts fighting with itself. Yeah. That's so... I'm not, so then I'm not sure the word, then um, you're going to have to You're going to have to ask about, the alien what the word for this would yeah. be. <laughs> yeah. I, I, that's a, there's a reason why it's such a strange wording. <laughs> I don't even know what the right question is. Yeah, okay. 
That's why. That's why I went on advice so that I can just start mumbling. So I guess I get. I hope your alien is as nice as my advisor. And if I start mumbling to him, he'll figure out what my question is and then answer it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You're gonna have to get back to me on if you could figure out the wording that's optimal for your question. I'll, I'll try to make get a wording that makes sense. Okay. And then uh, I didn't pitch this question to you last time. Yeah, I did. It, I answered it. The theory of everything, remember? Right. That was for physics. Is the answer the same if you could ask it anything and just anything in general? Oh, um. Um. I think so, because I think if I learn the mathematical structure of that, I feel like it could be. The pattern there could be moved to a lot of different areas in life, including like social dynamics and psychological dyna dynamics and stuff like that. Yeah. So I feel like if they explain that to me in detail, I would have like this understanding that I don't have now mm -hmm. that I could then put a lot of pieces together that that may even help answer your question. Maybe. But I don't know. So I probably would stick with that question. Okay. I'll think, if I think of anything else, I'll let you know next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll let, I'll let you pitch that to us in the future. Um, okay. Yeah, there, there was... Well, there's a, there's a couple things. Um, so, I guess this is the most related thing, so maybe it's redundant to ask it, but um, what do you think is the most important problem for physicists to try to solve now like what is the most what is the like in terms of like academia in terms of like problems that we're tackling what is the biggest problem that's that? it just as research problems yeah yeah huh what what's the uh, what do you think is going to be if you're a betting man i guess what would be the most impactful our betting man i would expect maybe fission if we could get fission and resolve hmm. energy problem hmm. um maybe uh in terms of physics if or i mean sometimes physics suddenly helps medicine in strange ways but i would uh, in the usual thinking of physics i would say probably fission would be my bet mm -hmm. as to what would be the most impactful in terms of humanity i guess yeah um hopefully <laughs> you never know yeah no i think that's a good answer how how do you feel about our thesis for the podcast? What do you think is the relevance of diversity in science or physics specifically? Do you think it's important? Do you think it's worthwhile to try to be as diverse and as inclusive as possible? I mean, definitely to be as inclusive as possible is definitely a good thing. Uh, because if you're not, then you're artificially excluding people that could be very valuable to you um, if you want to be a utilitarian about it <laughs> i guess i mean other people some people would say it's just inherently the right way of doing things to include mm -hmm. everybody there's no reason to exclude people um as to um why is diversity important uh I think I find some people to think that I, I, I get the feeling that some people think that diversity is important because although solve the same exact problem in a different way, I think some of that will happen. Um, but I says my feeling is that diversity is important not because 
or the things you can predict that will happen but the mm. things you can't predict will happen like yeah. i think it's my fi- my feeling is that if diversity really is as important as we think it is as i think it is i think i would put in my mind the reason is that you will bring in people that because they have different life a diff- very different life experience you can hopefully train them to be to understand your like what use what what the consensus physics in our case uh, paradigm is, but because he has this very different background, he can either use it in a completely in a completely different way, one mm-hmm. way that a way that we wouldn't have, nobody nobody in the community would have thought of, mm-hmm. or yeah, like for example, maybe uh, go to a place where nobody would have thought to teach it, or uh, see that. Oh, physics can be applied. I don't really. I'm. St- uh, we. I got distracted early. My. I should. I should mention. That. I, I did promise a second example as to <laughs> from earlier, but I've been distracted. I apologize. Um, but I don't know. I, I, all the examples I can think of is maybe like engineering problems, uh, where if a physicist went to solve it, it's not that we're better than engineers, but. Uh, Okay, let's put this. Uh, physicists, uh, typically, physicists aren't cons- thought of people that uh, can care that much about their communities, mm. to be honest. Uh, they're thought of people that are very smart and very intellectual and can solve very, are capable of very abstract thinking. Um, so uh, perhaps this person that is brought up in a very different culture where communities what's important more than uh perhaps self uh self progress uh self progression or progressing yourself or yeah self-improvement yeah okay um and all of a sudden you get this person you treat you you get them up to speed at what you're good at and suddenly says wait if i take this and bring it back to my community if, if i take this and i show it to the community the community will uh elevate them so uh, it will they'll have new tools new knowledge new uh new yeah knowledge mm-hmm. to improve themselves which perhaps was i would say not a very not a really a thing that's considered that much in physics i'm yeah. sure there are people yeah but there are isolated people yeah uh so i would say that minor if minorities matter i think is because they would use the exact same knowledge for new things mm-hmm. yeah I think that's the nicest way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I mean, I agree with that completely. And I think that in doing that, like you said, if you're more community-based, let's say, culture, mm. you grew up in that culture and you have, you know, you feel like you, you want to go back and, and progress your community in yeah. some way, you're bringing back this knowledge to them. Now you're creating a larger pool of people who have this skill and this knowledge that can further develop anything we need to develop right in physics and help society grow as a whole right i came up with a second another example yes um, go because i remember when i went to a conference at google and i and one of the persons that talked uh was of mexican descent and she talked about how she was studied physics but she ended up in google and used uh what she learned from her, her culture which was storytelling to apply it to her job mm-hmm. uh Feynman is very well known for his lectures mm-hmm. 
could, uh, you could imagine that if you suddenly brought in a big group of people from a culture that is values like storytelling a lot, they could develop a new way of talking physics in the sense mm -hmm. that like, or like teaching it in a new way, perhaps one that hopefully one that the community would say it's even better than the one they have. Mm -hmm. In which case, because usually, uh, in which case they would bringing in this new committee improve the community and the physics community. Because I want to use this example because the previous ones have been like physics helped these people to help other people. Uh, but I mean, physics can help if minorities bring in their cultural uh, input. They could change physics in a way that improves physics. Yeah. Yeah. And there's in this example. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So I mean, um, I think an interesting analogy is um, something I heard on Radio Lab again. Is uh, they did a special on Einstein recently, and you know Einstein's brain, and they were trying to determine if his biology, the way his brain was structured, was the sole cause of his genius. And stuff like that and they kind of also explored the fact that um, his environment had a lot to do with perhaps his discovery too like because um, back in the 1900s they were just developing the train systems right and so um, at that time they had to really rethink how we were doing time because suddenly you could get from one part of the country to another part of the country in a very quick amount of time. And so you have to determine, well, what's the right time, right? Is the time in this location the right time or is the time in this location the right time? Because they're not going to match. And just the point is, is that that fact alone, that him being in that environment caused him to think about how time relates or relativity, right? How time relates between these two different locations. Yeah. And I think something very similar could be said of people of minority backgrounds of people who come from diverse places and diverse ways of growing up because i think it's very much the case that the way we understand higher cognitive functions is by analogy right i think it's only like we only really understand these complex phenomena in relation to other complex phenomena that we have had some experience with right and um and it's like this foundational effect of like, okay, you can analogize it to this experience that you've had. And um, I think uh, all these different ways of growing up and having these different experiences, my prediction would be that you would have um, much different ways of looking at the world and as such, much different ways of thinking about the universe and, you know, how everything works together, you know, like relativity or... Like, say, you know, you grow up in some specific community and you see something in the world, like from a story or from, you know, whatever's going on around you, that um, people who all have the same experience of background would never consider, would never have the opportunity to even experience. Anyway, so it's just something to consider that I thought was pretty interesting. Um, okay. Um, anything to add to that, I guess? No, I mean, I, I think it, I noticed that it, I was going back to this issue with it. when you said structure earlier yeah. I, and I kind of like said, no, I was like, I'm kind of inherently, I don't like rigid stru structures. So yeah. that's probably why I would always ex expect 
minorities to improve something in, in a way that the structure wouldn't remember wouldn't know how to change yeah which is why i guess yeah it's why I'm yeah i mean i think in general as physicists we kind of value solving things from first principles right yeah and yeah. so um in, inherent in structures are a lot of biases and things that we haven't really considered that if you really think about them from a first principles kind of way um you could feel comfortable in doing away with a lot of the structure that's already in place so minorities having a different experience can um bring light to those bi biases i think yeah okay um so i'm becoming mindful of your time uh how are you feeling gabe i'm good uh yeah. what time is it? I, I we can keep going if you want Okay, well, I just have a, f a few more, like, maybe lightning round questions. Sure. Um, so I always like to ask the guests, um, because this has been a personal experience of mine, is if you had a friend that was to come up to you and uh, say that they think they're interested in physics and that they're um, thinking about pursuing it, like going to go study it for the first time, um, what advice would you give them? to perhaps not repeat all the mistakes that you made or like, um, you know, kind of preempt that learning? Uh, let's see. Um, I would say, well, it depends on the person. I, I think, okay, I'm going to say maybe advice I would give myself perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I would say don't focus on classes too much. Uh, okay. So let me, let me make that more clear. Than I, Make sure you do well in your classes and you understand what you're doing. Or, okay, as you say, don't take too many classes. Hmm. <laughs> make sure the few that, make sure you're like, in this case, quality is better than quantity. I think hmm. in general, I would say almost general, almost certainly. Um, I would say that if you want to go to graduate school, you got to make your path uh, in the sense that uh, you have to Figure out what you want to do. Figure out the tools you want to get. Uh, you need to do to do that. Um, but when you get when you get to grad school, you're. It's not like you're gonna be by yourself. But you need to consider. You you need to be self independent, self sufficient, and independent. Mm -hmm. That is an important thing, which is often not very much talked about, um, even in undergraduate university and undergraduate at the undergraduate level. Yeah. Um, so definitely develop self-independence. Uh, don't expect your t professors to tell you everything you need to know yeah. because they probably, they might tell you for the, maybe they'll tell you for the exam, but they won't tell you for everything else. <laughs> um, uh, it's a lot of trial and error. Uh, yeah, work hard, I guess. <laughs> That's, it has to be said, I guess. Um, look, look outside the classes. I take it essentially take it into your own hands. I would say, uh, and if you can get good friends, get good friends. <laughs> They'll help you a lot. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Very nice. Um, is there any negative experience that you've had in your life that you feel? has changed you for the better? 
Negative. Uh, yeah, negative experience in the fact that you wouldn't want to repeat it again. Oh. Uh, that would make me better? I don't know. I don't think I've had uh, like really big ish, like things like that mm-hmm. that I wouldn't want to. So to give you context is like mm-hmm. this Maybe. this thing I was talking about, um, like experiencing imposter syndrome mm-hmm. is like um, is an example that I might give personally mm-hmm. is like um, coming into this graduate institution and then doing pretty poorly. Mm-hmm. And then I wouldn't want to go through that again. I wouldn't want to do bad again. But um, I think it's brought a lot of perspective into my life in terms of. <laughs> I guess kind of humbling myself and kind of um, getting a bigger picture of what I do and don't know and things of the nature. Is there any experience similar to that or perhaps comparable that you feel you've had? Trying to think. I mean, uh, uh, because I would say that I I would repeat. I would change most of the classes I took. I took my first year of graduate school. Mm. But I don't, I don't know that they made, that having gone through all that made me better, <laughs> uh, to be completely yeah. honest. Yeah, that's right. Um, I would change them mostly because I think they were kind of a, the, the wrong way of going around things. Yeah. Um, so the part that I'm struggling with is finding something bad that, something bad enough that I couldn't redo, mm. but that was helpful to me. Because uh, for the most part, I don't, I don't take issue with bad things. I mean, I deal with them and keep going on mm-hmm. for the most part. Uh, okay. Any specific regrets then, I guess? Regrets. Or, yeah. So let's uh, restrict it to college and up. Yeah, yeah, no, okay. Um, I do... So a lot, uh, for, for a couple of years in undergrad, I realized, I knew that I needed to go back to like pre-calculus and like basic mathematics mm-hmm. and that I was, and I could, I would realize every once in a while by myself that, oh, I'm taking too many classes, uh, this is being counterproductive. I'm not learning my classes. Uh, if any regrets, I would say that not having the self, it's not self-motivation, it's a self-discipline maybe, or awareness. Not even awareness. That's the, that's the problem. I was aware of it. I was aware <laughs> of the goddamn problem. Yeah. It's not having the decisiveness. I think, I guess it's decisiveness the, the, the problem. Mm. Not having the decisiveness to like act on problems that I could, that I was smart enough to see in front of me and I just mm. uh, didn't have the, the strength or fortitude, I guess, to, mm-hmm. to deal with them. Because I mean, sometimes I even knew that, the, the answer. Like, it wasn't that hard to figure out. <laughs> and I still kept making the same mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. And then one thing I'm realizing I was neglecting here in our conversation is uh, your experience with field hockey, right? So that's, oh, yeah. it sounded like that was a pretty important part in terms of like your undergrad experience and stuff like that. So um, how important do you feel field hockey is to your life? I mean, I think it's very important. I mean, like, I've, been, I've played it for 17 years now. I started in 2002. I never stopped. I mean, sometimes I played more than other times, but I never stopped. Um, I also played with the national team. Started training with them in 2009. Mm-hmm. I stopped training with them, I think, 2015 or 16. Um, I 
probably when I'm done with classes, I'm going to call up my, the coach and it's like, hey, I'm going to start running and <laughs> training. If you need an extra player, <laughs> I'm in. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely important. Um, it's been, a, okay, it's been very frustrating, but for other issues, like just like the way things were and like the culture in that group. Mm. Uh, I love the sport, but there were a lot of uh, conflicts between people that were kind of, that made the, the environment kind of toxic. Mm-hmm. And I never, I didn't really appreciate it as much as I sh- could have because of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it made, it made undergrad difficult, more difficult <laughs> than it had to be too. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I would think like, maybe I should just stop field hockey to be able to focus on my classes or something. But yeah, I, I think it was good that I didn't stop. I never stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, I made some friends that I, I, I mean, I've met people there mm-hmm. that I would never met otherwise in, in terms of like life experiences. Yeah. Like one of the people in my old team used to be in jail. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my old teammates used to his, uh, uh, what's it called? His not cousin, uncle, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a big shot uh, gangster essentially. Uh, and he would sometimes would tell me a story about the kind of things he was doing when I was a little kid and like, God damn dude, that's not, that's not okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, he, he had changed more afterwards. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely good for me. Okay. Yeah. And so how do you feel graduate school has affected that relationship with field hockey? So I think it's not some, okay, well, actually, it would have changed. It would have changed it a lot had I been in a place where a serious hockey team was. This, the hockey team in the university is fairly uh, casual. Um, sometimes we have people that start playing for the first time in their lives when they get there. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, it's uh, okay. Actually, yeah, because I would I would be training more and trying to go with the team to tournaments. I mm-hmm. guess in that sense. Um, it has prevented me from doing that, but uh, actually, because it because the team here is more casual, mm-hmm. I don't have to. I don't care about any of the gossip, mm-hmm. uh, and I just enjoy my time. I just enjoy myself. So it's actually mm-hmm. been a very like an outlet to to relax mm-hmm. and get away from physics. Yeah, it's definitely been good for my mental health. Okay. Yeah. Great. Um... How difficult did you find it to balance that in terms of finding time to do field hockey and graduate school? Oh, in graduate school, not so much. I mean, you, we practice twice a week for two hours. And sometimes, so essentially because it's so casual, whenever I, my homework was, whenever I couldn't finish my homework or had to study for old test, I, I would just tell them, I'm sorry, guys, I'm just not going. Hmm. Like in undergrad, it was more difficult because in that case, I was being more serious about it yeah. and uh i mean i would i sometimes left for a week or two in the middle of the semester um and I, before that i was training three day, three nights a, a week plus some weekends plus whatever i did by myself yeah so that time it was more it was uh harder to yeah. balance mm-hmm. yeah irene do you have any questions in, on this vein when okay. are you coming to field hockey 
<laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I found my field hockey stick at home, so I really? could. I'm probably the same height as I was when I played, so <laughs> probably could still play. Not very well, but yeah. I'll consider it. Shit. Yeah. Okay, so I, I guess I'll just kind of um, invite you to reflect with us as to um, the importance of having this outlet to you is in graduate school. How do you think you would fare without it? How important do you think it is for people in graduate school to find something like this to try to support their mental health? Mm. Uh, it's definitely very good for me. Uh, I think, okay, I, w I don't know how it would affect me, but I, I don't, definitely not, it would affect me in a very negatively wet, negative way. Because hmm. um, sometimes I did force myself to go to like stop studying or doing homework or working to go practice because I needed to do something else. Hmm. Um, and the fact that it was kind of like scheduled there, uh, uh, I could use that as like a, a benchmark like no wait I have field hockey and I really need to stop working because it's not uh, so it's definitely good and I definitely think it's a very important at least in programs which have very high workloads in their first year or whatever year I mean like you have to working too hard is not good for you uh, and the worst part about it is that working too hard can be counterproductive and Sometimes, I mean, even I mean, it still happens to me that sometimes uh, I work 10 hours a day. And when I think about it, sometimes I suddenly I realize, uh, yeah, I'm, working, I'm, I'm there 10 hours a day, but I get tired at some point and like I start, I slip in and I slip in and like start talking to somebody. And then I start mm -hmm. maybe watching some YouTube or get on Facebook or I'm there for 10 hours, but how much of that 10 hours did I really work? Mm -hmm. and repeating that process of working 10 hour days for example uh just makes these times where you're wasting these these 10 hour this, like chunks of these 10 hours just get bigger when you're wasting your time uh not to mention that you get wake you wake up t more tired mm -hmm. the next day and so you're even less productive when you're being productive and mm -hmm. it's like uh it's hard, but you have to, uh, you really have to be mindful of that and having a hobby that sometimes uh, like set aside sometimes like no matter what you go like that is helpful and uh, some semesters have like said that or, or parts of the semester I just say that like, you know I need to do something other than physics I'm going no matter what mm -hmm. screw homework screw whatever mm -hmm. yeah yeah no I, I'm uh yeah, that's something that I have to become ever mindful of more and more. It's it's really difficult to find that work-life balance, right? Especially in graduate school. I often catch myself slipping in terms of working too hard. And then, you know, um, so it's something that I've struggled with a lot and tried to find that balance. But I'm working at it, you know, just like everyone else. Um, you know, I wish I had a consistent hobby that, I, you know, I could do say something similar. I mean, I have a lot of interests such as this podcast i guess that mm -hmm. it, i guess is becoming that hobby um so that's good and um so yeah I, I agree i think it's that is part of the culture that i think we need to work to change in terms of mm -hmm. graduate school in general probably is um the workload is kind of unrealistic yeah. i think in that aspect 
Um, and, you know, maybe that goes back to cutting out some of these classes that we don't need because it's like, for how much we're working, it still takes a hell of a long time to get your doctorate degree, right? So um, yeah. I think maybe if you just <laughs> trim some of the fat in terms of like this this shit that no one cares about or <laughs> is really not productive in terms of the quality of your research and yeah. stuff like that. Um, I think that could be really beneficial to seeing the overall quality of work just increasing just because people have more time to be human, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Irene, any thoughts? No, I mean, I agree with you. I mm. mean, just as a curiosity, how many productive hours would you say you have a day or a week, whatever is easier for you to report? I don't know. I think it varies by what I'm doing. I, I feel like sometimes if I'm doing something I've done before, I know I'm, I'll be very productive because I don't, uh, I find that I have difficult, I don't know if I have more difficult, okay, I feel like I have more difficult than other people. Maybe that's not right. Um, but I feel like I have a very hard time uh, learning something new in an efficient way, I guess. Uh, so when I'm doing something, I already know. For the most part, I feel like I'm doing, I do it at a, a, reason, a good pace. Mm-hmm. Um, versus when I do something for the very first time, I often feel like I don't, I feel like uh, um, uh, sometimes I start staring for the, at the screen for 10 minutes, looking at the same, at the same paragraph maybe or something mm-hmm. like that. So I feel like uh, uh, in, the, in the process of learning, I'm not very, I don't, maybe I'm not very flexible as to realizing, oh, I'm stuck. I should change what I'm doing or go like, I have to resolve this in a different way. Maybe talk to someone else about it or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I would say that when I'm doing something I know, I'm fairly productive when I'm doing something I don't know. And I mean, sometimes it varies a little bit, but usually I'm not that productive, I don't say. Mm-hmm. And then I start like talking to people around me. Or maybe if I had a very strong week or a couple, a strong day the day before, maybe the next day I started getting a little <laughs> more, <laughs> yeah. more lenient with myself as to what I, how much work I need to do. So, yeah. Yeah. So you would say that overall, do you feel like you're average productive or below average productivity in a week on average or above? I, I certainly feel below average. Okay. But probably, but I'm probably actually average. Yeah. I know <laughs> I, I feel like I'm yeah. like really below average. Like yeah. I don't, not very productive at all. That's how I feel personally. But I just wonder because I am interested to know mm-hmm. like how people perceive themselves in terms of producti- productivity versus how they perceive other people's productivity. I would expect myself to think of less than what I do. Like, I, th- I think I tend to be a bit pessimistic in terms of uh, how productive I'm being or something like that. Yeah. I think that's nice. Yeah, I think that's fair to say of most people, right? I'd say that's the same in my case. And I'd be surprised to find someone who claimed the opposite. <laughs> I'd almost be tempted to call them a liar. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so... It, I think that's a common experience. Right. Right? Yeah. yeah. Which probably has something to do with the, so many people having imposter syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, when everybody has imposter syndrome, it can't be that everybody's an imposter. <laughs> right, exactly. That, <laughs> that's the one assurance you have because yeah. the statistics are crazy on that. Yeah. But, um, okay. Um, I think I'm running out of questions. Uh, yeah. Does now seem like a fair time to wrap up is okay so is, is there anything that you'd like to 
um, shout out any family members any projects you're working on any charities etc anything you want to uh, toss out into the ether i don't know <laughs> i usually don't like shouting out people's names or, or things okay i will i will thank you for this i like i, yeah. I think it's a great project that you got going on yeah thank you, you and irene so good luck <laughs> thank you yeah. the best yeah. yeah yeah i appreciate that well we'll need it but uh <laughs> but yeah it's been great having you on and um hopefully we can Try it again sometime. Sure. Yeah. Don't forget to like us on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, self-plug. Self-plug, everyone. Okay. All right. Thank you again for coming on here. Yeah. My pleasure. All right. Goodbye, everyone.